What is hip-hop and happening, gamers? Welcome back to the Super Show podcast, episode number 167, coming at you, not quite live this time, from the blind spot of the games industry, the hangover week of the games industry, as everyone has collectively left LA um, and stopped producing any newsworthy announcements or headlines or anything for us to talk about, but we're going to try anyway. And when I say we... I'm talking about not just myself, but also my good friend, Mr. Alex Jones. Good evening, sir. How are you? I am very well, thank you, mate. Yes, this is going to be um, uh, a bit of a dry one on the news front, but we've got some stories. We've got some stuff to chat about, so um, everything should be all good. And, uh, mate, I'm just happy to be here chatting about video games with you. What can I say? Yeah, you know what? We don't do this often enough. It's almost like we should sit down every week and watch every video game live stream and break down every single announcement from the summer game. Oh, wait, we did all of that, and it's already out there in the public. You can go to our YouTube channel and watch whatever you'd like. Um, that means, as I've said, you can recap our watch-alongs of certain live streams. We watched the Ubisoft forward. Did No, did we watch the... I'm forgetting what we watched live what we didn't. Did we uh, watch we, Ubisoft? No, we didn't. We watched um, <laughs> we watched Summer Game Fest. We watched Xbox, uh, and that was it. Oh, yeah, I guess there was that PlayStation showcase the week before that kind of... Did, we summed up those. Yeah. Last week's podcast, we also summed up the Ubisoft Forward, and we we did a super fast sum up of Capcom uh, as well. You did for us right at the very end. Absolutely, yeah. So if you want to know um, everything, you know our thoughts on everything from Starfield to I don't know Avatar: Frontiers of Pandora, <laughs> it's all out there. Like I said, YouTube is the place to go. At Super Show Pod, uh, there are podcasts, there are live stream catch ups and watch longs. Everything's available there. And if you want to consume all that stuff in audio form, you can head over to major podcasting platforms like Spotify, like iTunes, like Google Podcasts. You can find it all over there too. And as a last resort, if you're just really allergic to anything new wave, anything high-end, anything digital, well, this is still kind of digital, but it's more, it's analog digital. It's Paisley Radio over at paisleyradio.com. And the reason I say it's analog digital is because it's broadcast out at Thursdays at 10 p.m. If you miss that, you can catch it on Mondays. If you miss that, you can't catch it again. It's gone. Okay, that's the way radio, well, unless you go to the YouTube channel, I guess, in which case that stuff lives forever, Josie. It does. You think you can get rid of it. You think that your uh, brief stint on OnlyFans will be gone after you uh, decided that actually you want to be a primary school teacher. But no, it's out there forever for everyone to see. Yeah. You get yeah. wanked off by a a man in a hazmat suit. I don't know. Is that what you you think you'd go for? Would that be your niche on OnlyFans? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Radiation hazmat suit. Interesting. I thought you'd be a foot guy because a little peek behind the curtain here, Jonesy used to own, or probably does still own, a pair of shoes. For you to say feet. Jonesy used to own feet. Jonesy still has yeah, feet. Yeah, he's very well known for his feet. Um, and these shoes had individual things for each toe. So you would plug, I don't, I don't, I don't know, plug to use other than plug. plug, but you would plug each toe into its socket and wear these weird, like, Something like like a Guillermo del Toro alien would would have feet like these. It was it was disgusting. No, it was. And you put them to work. That was just for you and Chris. I knew you'd love it. Well, yeah. they were called Vibram Five Fingers, and they were that whole <laughs> they were that whole barefoot running craze thing. Because I, do you know what? It was I was I, I started to run like sometimes to work from the station, and it's like I think it was just it was just over a mile, and I'd run like to work, and I'd run home. And I was like, you don't want to like, but you don't want to wear like running trainers all day or whatever. And then I got these 
fiber and five fingers. Because the idea is you can't run on your heel, like you can't heel strike because it fucking hurts. So you run on your toes and you run like, <laughs> it's, there's probably 18 books about it. It's like you spoke how humans were supposed to run back in the Savannah. You're supposed to like run on your toes. So I got them and I wore them a couple of times and they are comfortable, but they do hurt your calf muscles because you're not used to walking on your toes all the time. Yeah. I, I, I'm impressed that they're comfortable at all. I do think they need a little bit of rebranding work because Vibram Five Fingers sounds like something that a, a writer at Blizzard would come up with and get rejected for for like a rare item on in World of Warcraft. They were like, no, no one's no one's going to wear Vibram Five Fingers. No one's going to do a raiding in the Five Fingers. It is also weird now you say it because obviously it's toes. It'd be like making mm. a, making a pair of gloves that are called like uh, warm toes, and they're for your hands. Well, I think that's what people found so disconcerting about the footwear of choice for you in the, in those hot summer months was that there's something about like making each toe so individual. Each like, biggie, like, each piggy's yeah, got his own home. They they shouldn't stand out that much. They should be like there should be some ubiquity to the way people's <laughs> toes are presented in public. Um, but then I'm a freak about that stuff anyway because I don't even like or for that matter own flip flops, sandals, anything of that nature. Even these slide-ons, uh, these that are very popular nowadays, don't own anything like it. Don't like seeing them. Don't wear them on public transport. I, if I see exposed toes on a public transport, like the tube or the bus, I should reserve the right to strike you on the t- on the toes. You stamp, and I, I mean, can't stamp on the toes. I think a place of my choice. I uh, so I actually bought some sliders like two weeks ago because um, I did. I all my my flip flops have all died so uh from last summer so i was like oh, i need to get some more and i couldn't find flip-flops and all i could find was sliders so i thought okay i'm gonna rock some sliders and they're quite nice i, I like them and i think they're quite comfortable i don't wear them with socks that's a yeah. really strange thing i find that really weird yeah that's I'm not i'm not a roadman so i'm not rocking some adidas sliders and white socks that's just strange you and me both Josie. we have that in common our roadman uh qualities and tendencies not quite up to par um we're just regular men of this earth, would you say? We're just what's the what's the meme video? We're just, we're just, we're just normal men, normal men, innocent men, just innocent, we're just innocent men. men. We're just innocent men. Just innocent innocent men, men who um are not so much scraping the barrel of video game news this week, so much as we're scraping the toilet um, of video game news. But we do get to start things off this week with one of our favourites on the podcast. It, like if ever there were sort of like. I mean, Chris will always be our sort of like not quite third member, but if ever there were like a fourth member of the Super Show, I'd like to think um, it would be Mr. Hideo Kojima. It would be Kojima-san, who doesn't know us, doesn't know we exist, we've never interacted or interfaced with him in any way, and yet he feels like family um, in a weird way. We've talked about him at such length over so many years, I completely agree. He is the... uh, There's a few people out there that are going to take umbrage to this, (laughs) <laughs> namely people that have been on the podcast multiple times. But no, oh, I think the fourth member of the pod is, is Kojima-san. Um, I, I, would lo- I would love to do um, yeah. is sporadically do interviews in this format where we connect with people over the internet. And if we could interview Hideo Kojima and his, yeah. and his translator, let's be honest, um, at, you know, for to add to a little well, section for our pod, that would be amazing. I think we'd probably have to pay Jeff Keighley's fee as well. I think, like, by law, he has to be present for every English language thing Kojima does. And for right. as much as you're right to point out, you know, the likes of uh, of Steph and, and Sam and Martin and uh, all the other the friendly faces that have helped 
uh, you know, fill the rotating seat in this podcast over the years. You know, you've got a mortgage to pay. I've got rent to pay. We've got a Patreon to plug. If it came down to it, and it was a it, who's who's up for the hot seat, and it was Steph Murphy versus Hideo Kojima. <laughs> um, well, one of those pays the bills slightly easier than the other, and um, well, I don't know. Let me put it this way: when it comes to our kinship with Hideo Kojima, he's one of the only game developers on planet Earth. I I genuinely think that you could introduce to the Five Fingers, and he would start wearing them. He'd, they'd, he'd put him in the next game. There'd be something you'd yeah, get. They'd, they'd be in Death Stranding. There'd be you something you'd get in Death Stranding, and it would make sense. It would be. It would actually be the only way those shoes actually make sense. Yeah, there is a lot of feet stuff already in Death Stranding that kind of fits. You know the way he kind of wiggles his toes when you zoom the camera in on his feet. Yeah, and he and he has to upgrade his shoes. And he, at one, he has that one cut scene where he peels his toenail off and in the shower. Gross feet stuff. Um, and Hideo Kojima go hand in hand. Uh, so do apparently, Jonesy, in the potential future, extraterrestrial travel. Um, that's according to a recent round of interviews that Kojima did while he was speaking at the premiere of a new documentary, Connecting Worlds, that is actually all about him. Um, very strange experience. If anyone wants to head over to YouTube and watch the trailer for that one, um, I love Hideo Kojima. I like his games very a lot, but that is one of the most like masturbatorial exercises in documentary filmmaking I've ever seen. Um, I think at one point they describe him as like the first ever auteur in video of in video games. I was like, it's just, it's a little bit much. Um, yeah, that's a bit weird. Yeah. But the good news for us as podcasters is that it meant that he was put in front of cameras and microphones, which meant that he was given a platform to say actually crazy stuff, which he did do, um, when he was being interviewed, as I said, in connection with this documentary, um, he was asked what he wanted to do in the future. Uh, any uh, t- t- quick question, Josie? Actually, no prizes involved, but any guesses as to um, who might have asked Hideo Kojima this question? If one white, if one English-speaking white man were present to have asked Hideo Kojima a question, who might it have been? Uh, it, it's probably going to be Kef Geely. It, it, the shiny, shiny shoes himself, Kef Geely, was on the scene. <laughs> Um, and in response to this question about what he wanted to do in the future, Kojima said, "I want to go to outer space." I want to go to outer space and create a game you can play in space. Dot dot dot. So please, someone send me up to space. Um, which shout out Bezos, send me to space. Yeah. That's a beautiful addendum of realizing, hey, I'm still in America. There are probably some crazy rich people in the audience. Like, I shouldn't just pitch this idea. I should also pitch the fact that I need to go to space for it. Um, do you know what? Okay, this is one thing that immediately comes to mind though when you say that, because then what we're saying about like, oh, Jeff Bezos could send him space. He's got his own company to do that. Um, Obviously, Elon could as well, but there was a there was a clip, and if you haven't seen it, go out there and watch it. And it's where um, William Shatner was sent to space, and he went with Jeff Bezos. And then they yeah. come back down, they land, and Jeff says something to William Shatner like, um, "What did you think?" And William Shatner has this kind of profound moment where he says, "Like, what I looked out into the inky black void of space, and there was nothing. There was nothing there." Um, and we're so obsessed with this vast emptiness. And I turned around and looked upon the earth in all its glory and realized that how everything we've ever known, all life exists there and where every story that's ever happened is there and how amazing lo- earth itself is. And then he like looks back at Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos goes something like, what a fucking ride. <laughs> you just like, <laughs> if, if at that point I could have put someone next to, um, uh, next to William Shatner, I think uh, Kojima-san would have been the perfect person. He would have gone even more in depth about craziness and stories and 
what you could do with that, like, you know, experiencing that. He'd probably come out of something. Crazy shit if he went to space. He'd suddenly come out of a whole new... It wouldn't be like walking, Jamie. It wouldn't be a walking simulator. It would be a space simulator. A space walking simulator. Space walking simulator. Yep. You attach a tether. Um, or you attach a strand to a space station and go spacewalking off in the distance. Um, I also I would look forward to all the really, um, no doubt, interesting and, and very uh, post-modern uh, ways that Hideo Kojima would interpret some of these ideas, like... Uh, I can envision a point at which uh, Sam Porter Bridges, presuming he's still the protagonist, comes across a strange, out-of-place black hole in the ground, and Kojima then steps in and say, the black hole represents a black void that he that one would feel when one visits space. Um, if you can pick up what he's putting down, you know, you'll understand. But it's advanced, you know. This is high-level high allegory and metaphor, I understand. Um, you know. I would love it if it turned out in years to come that Hideo Kojima has no idea when it comes to like writing stories, video games, anything like that. And actually, he is, I don't know what the equivalent word would be, he's like a beard and the translator is the real genius. And so whenever that someone asks a question, the translator is the one who sort of gives the answers and Kojima's there just thinking he's having a chat about biscuits or something. He's a chef. He doesn't know anything about video yeah. games. That would be pretty spectacular. You do sometimes wonder if the lines get blurred when, especially, there are some you know increasingly massive and uh, lengthy uh, Japanese titles that get brought over to the West every year now. The localization teams that work at places like Capcom and Sega, like because one thing we learn and we know about language, the more conversations we have, is that sometimes it's really difficult to translate things one to one, and uh, there are sayings or idioms that just don't translate at all or that wouldn't make sense. I, it must be fascinating, um, a working in video game localization, and b having to and be like being the secret genius uh, behind all of Kojima's work. It's like that weird theory that like Shakespeare just stole all of his shit. Like Shakespeare was a fucking like they did couldn't do shit, and everyone around him was really smart. It's funny because we've got around to this because of course we were de debating whether on what well, we weren't we weren't going to put it in, but there was a story about Street Fighter Six whereby they um, have created an, a character that you can fight in the game who is purely uh, in existence because of a mistranslation. Because in yeah. Ryu says, you will not be able to take on my, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it is, my uh, Shoryuken, my Dragon Punch. But it was translated yeah. just Sheng Long and then everyone's like, who's this Sheng Long boss? And it's not a boss, it was just a mistranslation. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it is weird when you think about, because you'd think that it wouldn't be that hard to localize stuff and to get a, mo a, a local equivalent. But apparently they just absolutely butcher it half the time. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's come on a long way lately. Like, certainly there are some very infamous, as you said, like, not just stories, but also memes that have resulted from very poor translation work that existed. And, like, weird things about how uh, certain, like, Street Fighter is another example, how they have to shift around all the names all the time. And, like, there are different names for people in, in, in Japan compared to the US because, um, like, very due to various problems whether it's likeness issues or copyright issues or things being more appropriate for each audience um something that kojima wouldn't really have to worry about too much when it comes to space because it's kind of nomad it's like the same as being in international waters um as the film Step Brothers reminded us if you were to eat another man's penis in international waters no one could do anything about it like you can't be prosecuted um it's true I uh, does the moon thing hold because america obviously put a a flag in the moon and Eddie Izzard taught us that that's how you claim somewhere is you stick a flag in it and then it's yours even if other people are there already so 
if so the 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 gap between earth and the moon is no man's land you can eat a penis and it's fine yep on the moon if you eat another man's penis are you subject to american law good question um it's one for joe byron i was gonna say one for hideo kojima i think he'd have some really profound thoughts on that uh, speaking of which I'm gonna I'm gonna get you to play the job of Jeff Keeling, clarify something that Kojima said that you know isn't helped by the way it's written down. When he says um, he that he wants to create a game where you can play in space, do you think he's referring to a game that allows the player to control a character who exists in space? You know, maybe like floating in zero gravity, or nope. or do you think it's literally this is a video game that you go to outer space to play? If I know Hideo Kojima, and I think I do, he is talking about a game that in space you can play it right wow i mean again that that kind of brings back around the, the kind of the jeff bezos link it's not impossible to see a world where one of those crazy billionaires like is richard branson still doing his stuff uh i think they because that was uh galac what was it virgin galaxy was it galaxy virgin galactic you'd know better than me i think it's virgin galactic um i believe that has now closed down but I, okay. I think he's still going, but Virgin is still going, but I think Virgin Galactic is, is closed down, I believe. Yeah. I should check. I, I, I could see, so basically what I'm saying is I could see some billionaire linking up with Kojima and saying, hey, could you design an, uh, design an experience that is like in some way a video game that enhances the, like what it's like to be in outer space or to, to visit outer space or whatever terminology you're meant to use for that shit. Um, and it becomes a weird part of those sort of, programs they're running like the one that you mentioned that Shatner went on um but that seems like the biggest of stretches and I think even Kojima in the context of this quote wasn't imagining that as as how the story ended um yeah all right do you know what I I, I could not have been more wrong in what I just said as well uh let me let me completely denounce and reject my own previous comments because Virgin Galactic is within weeks uh, we're talking the end of June, 27th of June to the 30th of June, has its eyes on its very first commercial space flight. Um, wow. Uh, which is going to hopefully kick off like proper space tourism. So not just these, you know, billionaires taking some mates up with them. It's actually going to be a um, something that you can, you can do yourself. Uh, and it'll only cost you $450,000 per person. So... Okay. I mean, sell your house and a couple of kids and you might be able to go. I'm not sure how that would go down with your wife, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's worth a shot, right? Like once in a lifetime opportunity. Everyone gets a chance. Well, most people get a chance at home ownership at one point in their life. How many people get to go to space, James? I would love to go to space as well. The, the problem is, realistically, in one of these little space flights, you're probably going to go. It's, it's not going to be proper space flight, is it? It's going to be pop up skim the atmosphere a bit of a parabola so you can get a bit of zero g yeah and you're going to come back down and you're going to be up there for like five minutes and go wasn't that amazing and you'll be like if you're a billionaire it wasn't amazing yeah 450 grand probably don't give a shit you can make that in about three and a half days so you like the bond that's fine exactly if you're someone who sold their house to experience that i imagine it doesn't hit quite the same you're like oh it was good but i'm now destitute yeah no i, I tend to agree and but that being said, when you outline a future for space travel like that, I can totally see a world in which Hideo Kojima does visit outer space at some point in the future. How that impacts his future game creations remains to be seen. But one thing you and I were talking about before we started recording 
is that he is, whether in practice or in theory, no stranger to what might be considered radical game design ideas. We talked about uh, Boktai, the GBA game that had a light sensor on the actual cartridge and had functions within the game to basically, you know, that would vary depending on how much sunlight that uh, sensor was exposed to. We also talked about a quote from some time ago where um, he, 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 he pitched this idea of a video game that would somehow self-destruct uh, if the player should die. This idea that, you know, one might actually be buying a full-on retail product that if you die once in the game, essentially your journey is over at that point, which would be very hard to price, um, I'd, I'd say, if I were thinking in sort of marketing and uh, marketing terms. It's got, no, it's got to be expensive. Because if it's, yes, because imagine if it, if it was like 50p, yeah. It, then, then you completely remove right. the uh, the stakes because you, yeah. and if, especially if it's free, you could just like create a new account, and go back in. It needs to be like fifty quid, so you've got some skin in the game. Okay, I mean it. It would that would be fast. It would be one of the lowest selling games um, of his career, but it would be one of the most fascinating. Oh, I tell you, what would be absolutely for not like amazing about that um, would be that you effectively becomes the game that as a streamer. Especially if you're good, if it, let's say for example it was a uh, battle royale game, but there was right. no, but it was a persistent battle royale universe where everyone gets one shot, right? But if you're a streamer and you think you're, you know, the best streamer or whatever, you think you're really good at first-person shooters, put your money where your mouth is because you've got one shot at surviving in this game, and ever and you go on and you stream it and you're like, I'm gonna stream it, I'm gonna do it, and then you get in the game and it's like. That would be pretty cool to see people actually, yeah. Because you'd have one go at trying to make, and I don't. You'd have to have some sort of way by you could, you could remove yourself from the environment and save in between streams, obviously. But that would be that'd be cool. It would be very interesting. And you're right to mention streaming because that would absolutely be a spectator sport. Like you could sit like someone who'd been on like the craziest run, depending on how the game was designed and which. Are, but someone who'd be like, yeah, they're 250 hours in and they still haven't died, like. That would become the hot topic, and everyone would start watching them. It would be like, you know, how's this going to end? You get you know, so many interesting stories that we come out of that, depending again on sort of the nature of the game or its genre. Um, but yeah, it it will be interesting to see, and it's the reason why I'm excited that whilst we know he is of course developing uh, Death Stranding two or DS two, um, and we saw a trailer for that last year, we know he's also working on some very ambiguous projects with Microsoft that appears to make use of some of their cloud-based technology. Um, I think that might have also been the same game that Google at one point passed on um, when they were kind of in the midst of uh, figuring out what the future of Stadia looked like. So the the a world, and it seems like it's the one in which we inhabit, where Hideo Kojima is kind of making a safe game and a dangerous game simultaneously and always tactically using other people's money while he does it um, is an exciting one to me. So... Um, any 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 uh, elevator pitches that you would, and li let's say literal elevators. You've just arrived. You've just touched base in, let's say LA this December for the Game Awards. Uh, you're you're a personal guest of Mr. Keth Geely. Um, <laughs> in fact, no, you're not even a personal guest. Uh, he ordered a, a specific pair of sparkly shoes from London. <laughs> you've been entrusted to bring them to him personally. Ones that you can plug your toes into each individual little piggy hole. Exactly. These yep. are the Vetron 600s or whatever. <laughs> I, don't, I can't even remember the name of the fucking shoes. 600 fingers. Um, and uh, you've just got into an elevator. You're going up to Jeff Keeley's uh, private penthouse suite um, to hand over his shoes. Kojima steps in. 
Oh, it says, ah, oh, I've listened to your podcast. Um, what do you think I should do for my next video game? Oh, that's you. You've got the rest of that elevator ride. To so, Kojima, does this need to be a you game here? Does this need to be a game that you can play in space? No, I, I, we could tap into the space element. Could not tap into the space element. This could be a fully fleshed out idea, or just a strand of an idea, um, a, a, a component, or an idea, or an element, or a trend, or anything that you th would be curious to see. One of the more interesting minds in gaming, sort of tap into, even if it's just like I want to see what Kojima, Hideo Kojima comes up with if he's forced to make a sports game, like. I want to see what Hideo Kojima's Baseball 2024 looks like because it'd be fascinating to see what his mind does with those parameters, you know? So, yeah, no, actually, you know, my mind kind of went to the same place, um, but in a different genre. I would love to see his take on a, and I don't mean from the subject matters specifically, but I mean like kind of how the game works. I would love to see Hideo Kojima's take on uh, something like Life is Strange. Um, so, very narrative driven. Exactly, like very narrative driven, but also... Put some, um, uh, sort of make him aim it at like maybe slightly a younger audience, a different crowd, so he can't just fall back into the same kind of, um, you know, things that he does, the these story areas that he falls into these days. Like, like to see him actually be pushed in that direction where it's got to be maybe like it's based around a school, it's teenagers to start with, and then you kind of go from there and you go out and you say, Hey, Dad, yeah. tell you, tell your story. But yeah, narrative. We're not talking stealth. We're not talking um, uh, any, killing anyone. And then go. Go ahead, Dale. It would be fascinating because there's so much that's said, you know, when it comes to his work on the Metal Gear series. Um, and of course, most recently with Death Stranding, so much conversation about the narrative chops of those games versus the gameplay chops and how much of how much would each one stand on their own um, if the other was removed. Kojima making like an almost gameplayless, like a walking simulator esque story driven game. Um, that would really see his uh, his writing laid bare in a way that I think would be excruciating for some people and fascinating for others. Um, I I think he'd love it. Like he's, he obviously you know with his cutscenes and stuff, he gets hours and hours and hours of exposition and things into his games anyway. And he always has these overarching like big narratives, and he likes to follow. Um, these you know strands and really get into sort of almost philosophy and things like that, but just to direct it and to put it into something, like, I think yeah, I think he'd absolutely love it. If he didn't have to then go and now you fight, if he could just be no man, do whatever you want. They're, they're just going to walk to the next scene, to the next uh, interaction. You can do, you can go crazy. Yeah, wow. Uh, like I said, I'd be I'd be fascinated uh, to see what the outcome of that experiment would be for <laughs> some of the right and a lot of the wrong reasons. Um, fair. Um, uh, I I just want to say for what it's worth that I think it would be really interesting. With I think one of the things that Kojima's, I'm going to say Kojima's teams, um, over the years have done really well, especially in MGS Five and Death Stranding, have create is is creating these really interesting gameplay loops where you're constantly upgrading um your kind of uh the you know the the things you have around you, the tools with which you complete your missions or go about your tasks. Uh, and in such a way that makes life easier and the game is constantly ramping up the difficulty or the circumstances of the environment with which you have to do those tasks to counteract how much like you know life is getting easier like death running is the easiest example it's like just when you get to the point where you're like i've got level th level three shoes and an exoskeleton and i can carry 17 box at the same time he's like yeah now go and do it at like the, the peaks of the snowiest mountains <laughs> in the world and you're like ah yeah no okay, okay i see what you mean 
Um, and so I would like to see some of those loops um, applied to the wonderful world of clickers. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see today Zuma's cookie clicker too. <laughs> that, um, that would be interesting, yeah, to see what he did with the clicker would be quite fun. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he'd think of some very interesting descriptions for the um, the, the purchasables that bring those lovable upgrades. And speaking of purchasables, um, listen, folks, it's 2023, and what you do with your money has never been more important. People are experiencing cost-of-living crises all over the world, and you are staring and or listening to two of them, uh, which is why I come to you today. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually going to beg, which is why I come to you today to make you aware, should you not be aware already, that we are, in fact, on Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash super show that's the link that you can head over to check out uh everything we've got going on over there you can check out the various tiers at which people have chosen to support us at and we can check out the various rewards with which, that we give those people in return um it's pretty flexible two dollars a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month you can find a spot that you feel comfortable or that you think we and, and in fact i was about to say or that you think we've earned but i'm not actually going to invite that kind of sentiment because <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, I, I read some, there are some comments out there. Um, but you know, whether it's discord access, so you can chat to us or ask us questions and be informed whenever about to, we're about to go live. Cause we're um, still getting better at telling people when that shit's going to happen or whether it's Patreon exclusive videos that we filmed going back years at this point, it's all there. Patreon.com forward slash super show. And as such, I would like to, uh, well, first of all, there are some names on screen right now, uh, hopefully. Uh, Jonesy, give me a nod. There's the nod. There are some names on screen right now. So shout out to all of those legends. But I'd also like to give a special shout out to the likes of Aaron Cameron, Athletic Gravy, Brimstone, Cole K, Ice Not Rock Salt, Jesper Cam Dahl Nielsen, Leo Merger, Mindful Pig, Mr. Anthropic, Pastors Guild, Brett Z. Oh, excuse me. I jumped. There was a page break at the, at the same point um, as... Uh, as a jump in the list, as we move from the legends that I just mentioned to another group of legend uh, legends, the the members of the board, the ones that really uh, get our dicks. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that was I went into full and Chris mode there for a second, didn't I? Get our dicks hard. Um, Shouts to Brett Z, aka Shellshock, Geometric Potter, Hacksaw Book Read, Manuel Guerrero, and Peaswad, aka the Big Dogs. Um, but whether you are on screen or whether your name was said aloud or whether you have sub, you know, pledged to us at any point in the past, um, we thank you all so much. It is your continued and ongoing support that is the reason that we are still here doing whatever the fuck this is for whoever the fuck is watching and or listening. Um, yes, we get a kick out of it. I'd like to think we still, for the most part, enjoy each other's company. I enjoy Jonesy's. I, I, can't, I can't speak for the other way around. Um, but you, you guys are the reason that the lights are still on and that this podcast is still a thing, I guess, is the best way to describe it, right, Jonesy? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's it's still surprising there are people that support us week in and week out. <laughs> um, but we are very, very grateful, and that is exactly the reason why we are. We've been coming back for damn near three years, um, which is kind of crazy. Let's just say that, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, over three years. Um, oh God, of course. I do this every time. I lose a year. No, it is. It's over yeah, three years. Jeez, we, we, three and a half. We were, years now. Listen, you're listening to a pre-pand. You're listening to a pre-pandemic podcast. <laughs> I don't know why I turned that into a producer tag, but it just felt like it. it felt right. 
connected. Well, when we're like 40, when we're, I'm, you're in your 40s and I'm in my 50s and we're still doing this and we'll be like, thank you for coming back for 30 years and listening to our podcast. We're pre-pandemic. People will be like, who are these old bastards? What are they talking about? A grey-haired Jeff Keighley has just wheeled himself onto the stage at Summer Game Fest 2037. Um, Wheeled out a 120-year-old celebrity to talk about video games that they have no idea. Yep. Uh, People are wondering whether or not Tears of the Kingdom will go on sale for the very first time. (laughs) These and many other gaming milestones that we'll be embracing as as we enter the next chapter of our lives. But as we're still in the current chapter of our lives, Jonesy, um, how about you let the good folks at home and myself know what you've been up to lately? Do you know what? I finally did it, okay? I thought, this is the month. Um, I decided that it was time uh, to hop on board and pick up Jedi Survivor. So I finally got my hands on that. I finally did it, and this is the month. The only other month you could have done it other than this was April or May. There's those are two other months. I finally did it. I find I finally did it. For it's a long three, time. It's been, it feels like it's been a long, long time. I've been resisting and resisting. I mean, a lot has happened in that time. You're right. I, I take it back. And I'm I, I was really sort of like hankering for some more Jedi, um, and and I decided jumped in and I've and I've had it and I feel like I'm right. So like we said with um, uh, God of War, this really does feel like a continuation of the previous game. It picks up right where, well, not right where. It's, it's a bit of time's passed, but it feels like it picks up right where the previous game left off. There's no kind of um, craziness uh, to sort of changing in the way the, the game works or the story works. There's obviously some new things happening and, and new environments, but it feels very familiar, um, which I'm appreciating. Yeah. Um, there's still a little bit of the, um, not the, I, I can't think of a good word for it, but there's a little bit of the, like the platforming, um, misfires, I suppose is what I'm going to say. Were you tempted to say the word jank? Not, I think no, had. no, I, I, maybe jank doesn't feel right because I think with platformers, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion, right? When you, when you're trying to design a level and you're trying to get people to interact in a certain way, I feel like jank is not the right word for what, for in platformers where you kind of go, do I go over there? And it's because it's more like a miscommunication between the level designer and the player. And I feel like it's not maybe fair to call When something's jank, it's usually jank because that, they made the frigging game that way. So I don't know how much of it is just me. Um, I, <laughs> twice since I've been playing, I think I've played about four or five hours now. Twice I've had to Google like a, a bug, nothing's happening, like I'm stuck. And just to find out that I wasn't stuck at all, it wasn't a bug and I was just being an idiot. And I was oh, like, okay. oh, so I'll give you one example. And I don't feel like this is that this is that bad for me. Um, so there's a section where you meet up with um, Mirren, I think her name is, which is from the first game. It's like the, the mm-hmm. girl from the witch planet uh, from the, with all the sisters. And she leads you through the desert and she's taking you to meet up with Sia and you have not seen her for ages. And you reach a door and she just stops by this door. And you look at, and you look at your map and you're like, yeah, I'm supposed to go through there. And normally with the door, you get to it, you click R3 and the door opens, but nothing happens. So I started running around the environment. Like, am I supposed to do something else? Am I supposed to talk to her? And couldn't, and no idea what, I was like, oh, this is it's broken. So I reload, reloaded, did this, did it again. Exactly the same thing happened. So I Googled it, like, what is going on? Is it bright? And someone had exactly the same issue as me, did exactly the same thing, and then I'd, I'd submitted a bug report, like an official yeah. bug report. And the, just the response was, the force push the button on the door and i was like 
where's the there's no button then but sure enough there is a there is a big old thing is it one of those ones where the, is, there's a ball like stuck in a groove on the side of the wall and you have to push the ball around that was the second one that i didn't get oh okay the first one is it's just a door with it's like it looks like a lens sitting in the middle of the door but usually things glow blue when you can uh, interact with them with the force but i think because of the color it was and the environment it didn't look blue at all for me it just looked mm-hmm. gray so I'd, i was like oh game's broke <laughs> Stuck uh, in the room. but no but it was fine uh, and then the second one was um yeah it was the ball in the groove in the wall i was is like a, an airlock room where you're supposed to push this ball and i just was like what the hell and it turned out there was a stupid ball that you're supposed to push around <laughs> which i was like why have you just introduced this and then you wrote it's probably a loading mechanic to load one area and another area maybe um, but I've I've been really enjoying it. Um, even the the you know my gripe about people returning and like coming back when you get to a meditation point and like people reappear hasn't seemed that bad the second time around. Like it's actually seemed good in a way because I'm like oh let me uh, kind of go and redo some of those fights with enemies that I yeah. can bring back and uh, get a bit of practice in if I want to in certain numbers of enemies and things like that. Um, yeah, it's stunningly stunningly pretty game. Very well designed levels. Um, yeah, um, positives all around for me. Which um, are you playing in sort of like performance mode or fidelity mode, or do you do you recall which one you went for? I am playing in performance mode. The one of the first things okay. I did was to switch over. Um, we and weirdly though, like even in performance mode, you do seem to get some frame rate dips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I was asking. Like, which I was surprised at. Like at launch, I remember Digital Foundry recommending people stick with quality or fidelity or whatever it's called because. The 30 FPS there was more stable than the frame rate in oh wow performance mode, which it well it would fluctuate in you know the 40s and the 50s and stuff like that. But those fluctuations caused you know hitching and hiccups and stuff like that. That was some people found more off putting. Oh, interesting. Maybe I'll give that a try then because yeah, I've I've noticed a few um, right. like stutters and things, which which I was I then funny enough I thought to myself, wow, I'm glad I'm not playing in quality mode because I bet this is horrendous. <laughs> Um, but hey, hey, I'll give it a try. Maybe it won't be that bad. Um, I think my eyes got used to it eventually. I t- I did. I just unlocked the cross guard stance, so you can get the Kylo Ren style sword. And I'm I'm like I was like, this is absolutely wicked. <laughs> I'm I'm interesting. This. I see my reaction to that was like, oh, this is the most Dark Souls this game has ever felt because now with the so the cross guard uh, stance is is a two handed stance for anyone that hasn't seen it, which means that. Cal's strikes are a lot more uh, deliberate and take a lot more time to perform. And I was like, oh, I'm now having to, having to consider sort of like how long each animation lasts and like how to when I'm going to time my strikes against certain enemies. Um, unless you unless you just kind of like overwhelm them and, and spam attacks, which still works sometimes. So it's interesting that um, that you were drawn to that. Maybe or is it? I guess it's also a bit of a power power fantasy play going on there where. It's nice feeling like you're wielding a, like the the Star Wars equivalent of like a great sword or whatever. There is, and I, I like the animations and the the cross guard stance. Also, I think for me, it's one thing that I found find is that game is very. It's hard to you can't like cancel an attack. Kind of you know if you if you've hit the button too many times, if you hit attack too many times, you're into an attack. And then if you actually try and like dodge out of it or something, you kind of you can't until that animation's finished. But with the cross guard stance, because it's more deliberate and more considered, I've found that I've not been um over spamming square um and then over committing and then suddenly there's an enemy who's going to attack me and there's nothing i can do about it 
um right, yeah. i've because i'm considering each one of my hits more and it's very defensive as well so you can just like hold your defensive stance like walk them down and then yeah beat the shit out of them which is wicked <laughs> yeah definitely fun uh, you, no, you you are right. Obviously, the jank you, there is some jank in it, which was always going to be the case, I think. But um, I, and I think that's always the way with like games that sort of push the envelope, um, that are pretty, that are big, that have all this sort of different stuff intertwined with them. But I I really like the level design um, on Jedi Fallen Order and on this. I think they're very very strong when it comes to. Um, the way that the player can sort of see the path ahead and actually, but the st- it's that thing of not feeling like you're being sh- sort of pushed down a corridor, but you can go where you want, but you really can't. Um, yeah. I do like the way they've done the level design on these games, I think. And the, and the space fantasy, the Star Wars side of it works really well, um, which I love. So yeah, man, no, no, really enjoying it. Interesting. Um, I, I'm c- c- curious to come back to that one uh, when you finish it, because I, I, I would like to know your thoughts on, that game story, which ended up being one of my biggest uh, disappointments with that title, I felt. Right, so what's weird about the story at the moment is I kind of don't, I kind of have no idea what the hell I'm doing from a story right, perspective. Yeah. On an individual mission perspective, I'm fine because I'm like, okay, go here, do this. But then the overarching story at the moment, I'm kind of like, why am I even caring about this final That's a very planet? Good question, Jonesy. That's like, a very good question. Is it Tal- Taladon or Talanor? Talanor, thank you. So yeah, Talanor, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to Talanor to get Jedi information because we've lost a lot of the archives. But do I really give a shit about that? I've done pretty well without that stuff on my own. Like I'm, I'm yeah. It's a, it's a strange thing as well that I think Star Wars has a real problem with when you know where when you know everything that everything that happens in the future, you know everything that happens in the past. You have that strange thing where you're in the middle and you can't really do anything to, without messing up the law. So you have to do these little weird niche stories that if you want to make yeah. it impactful, they kind of have to have done nothing by the end of the story. Right, yes. Which you is- have to have a Rogue One situation, which is that that was a fun ride. Also, they failed and died. But, this, but then to be fair to Rogue One, and I think this is the only reason it, it seemed to work for me with Rogue One is they're the ones who get the plans to layer. Right, yes. and like, For A New Hope. Yeah. So they do actually, they do, um, they end up managing to do the thing which saves the rebellion because they blow up the Death Star. So they do have uh, impact. Whereas with Cal Kestis and with the other, like, you know, what he's trying to do, it's kind of like, he's got no, you know that he never defeats Darth Vader. You know that he never um, does anything big because it's already done. It's already happened. Like, I, so everything yeah. has to happen. In, yeah. Same with like the enemies that are presented. Like if a big bad Sith is presented at some point, who is a completely new character, you're like, well, you don't exist beyond this game, to my knowledge, unless there's, you know, a movie's going to come up and pick up where this left off. But that seems hard to believe at this point. It, no, absolutely. And then it's that's yeah. very strange because you're kind of like, well, if if you're a big bad Sith and you came into existence at the beginning of the game and I defeated you before the end, you're not really that important to anything outside of this game. Yeah. Um. Uh, you're, t- you're t- touching on some interesting points there, Jonesy. It's just that I know I mentioned last week. I kind of teased that I had like started writing a script, in it, or partly inspired by Jedi Survivor, about um, video game antagonists. And yeah, yeah, I feel like you're already seeing a lot of what um, I saw and felt quite strongly about by the end of that game. But I do have a superpower when it comes to games that I know you and Chris never had, which is I can play an entire game enjoy it think it was fantastic and then you and chris can be like what did you think of the story and i was like i've no idea what happened 
I mean, that is a pretty good superpower. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, how? I, how? What, you, what about this happened? The story and that. I'm like, I mean, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I just enjoyed the yeah. game for what it was. Yeah, I, I, that, that, that's understandable. I, I think we all have games where we get to a certain point. I'm not suggesting this is the case with you and Jedi Survivor, but for example, my phone is the biggest enemy to cutscenes in the world, and like, I, I sometimes actively have to resist the temptation <laughs> in games that I'm enjoying. Like I can feel my hand gravitating towards my pocket. Like, why? Why do I want to go on my phone right now? The cutscene started. This is important. Some cutscenes can drag though, like especially if it's a bit that you don't necessarily care about and you want to get to the next bit of, um, like level. You know, searching a level or especially with a game like Jedi Survivor because it is a bit of a, um, uh, God, what'd you call it? Um, ah, uh, what is that frigging game called? You know, like you go, you track back and like explore the same places again to go to places you couldn't go through before. Metroidvania, Metroid, thank you, Metroidvania kind of game, um, because there is a lot of that to it. In some respects, mm. I don't really care about what the characters are saying. I've just got a new toy and I want to go back and open that area that I know I couldn't get to before to find the little trinket okay. that was probably hidden there. And so I, yeah. do, I kind of do the same thing you do. I think I end up reaching for my phone and then I'm like, I miss some, miss some chat that I probably shouldn't yeah. listen to. Well. I gave Jedi Survivor the benefit of the doubt, and part of me wished I hadn't. So I wouldn't worry too much if you're, if it's you know in one ear out the other at the moment. Okay, <laughs> that's how that sounds. Um, anything else on the docket? I will briefly mention uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, which I checked out yesterday. Oh um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thought it was very good. Um, I I I thought it wasn't going to be great. I can't remember why. I think I'd heard a couple of opinions where people were like, oh, it's all right. But then I actually spoke to someone I shouldn't who told me that it was amazing and better than the first Guardians film. And I was like, oh, is it as in because their opinion then made me think, oh, shit, I'm so excited. Oh, I see. I, I thought there's like a person who we'd agreed we would never talk to again. No, 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 no. As, as in, no, I just, I just had a chat with a friend and they were like, oh, it's amazing. It's better than any of the other Guardians films. It's fantastic. You're really going to enjoy it. And I, and I did, but a little part of me was like, oh, did that make me, did that put my expectations up a little too high? But I still really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. I'm, I'm, it's a little bit of a weird one because it's the final in a trilogy. Yes. I'm, I came out kind of in a bit of a weird way that if it was the third film, in a quadrilogy, I would have probably pref like liked it a lot more. But knowing that it was the last instalment of the trilogy, it kind of made me think. I feel a little shortchanged in some respects. I don't want to like give give film away. If people haven't seen it, but the, the what it focuses on in the film is um, very good, and I enjoyed it. But I just kind of would have preferred it if they'd gone a slightly different direction. Interesting. Yeah, I understand that's it, like a difficult one to talk around while the film is still um, in cinemas or in theatres in some cases. But um, yeah, it, at least it seemed like overall like a, a a positive hit for the MCU at a time where you know I, I think you know that Ant Man film Ant Man uh, hadn't been particularly well received. The Jonathan Majors controversy was sort of hanging a little bit heavy right. over, and also just like the yeah the the future of the MCU seems really weird. Um, it does seem a bit strange. It, feels, yeah. it, feels, it just feels like it swings back and forth, where every good film is greeted with the MCU is back and better than ever. Every bad film is greeted with the MCU has died and it will just never be what it was. <laughs> um, um, That's so true. Yeah. 
But um, I tell you what it did though, and I'm briefly going to make everyone listen to me talk about this, just because I hope that anyone will be swayed to my way of thinking, and then uh, it'll make what I'm going to say more likely. Uh, it made me think about the Guardians of the Galaxy video game um, made by Ardos Montreal. Uh, and Square Enix when they brought it out back in 2021 and how much I would love to see a sequel um yep. which is maybe less likely these days because of you know what ha- happened to Idis Montreal following um uh, that game and the fact that it's now been brought up by Embracer Group and apparently has been you know a bit of shifting about and stuff it's a little bit more complicated these days not not necessarily yeah. a given um I don't know that much is a given over at Embrace at the moment, but we'll talk about that in a second. We will, yes, which is, yeah, makes it doubly interesting. But um, anyone who hasn't played it and who has access to Game Pass, I really, and if you like Guardians of the Galaxy, I really like that game. It's not a perfect game. It's not without bugs. It's not without flaws. But as a, a game that fits into the feel of the James Gunn, uh, you know, this iteration of Guardians of the Galaxy, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a game that I've even considered replaying just to get a little bit more of that. Yeah, no, I I actually have to like it's one of those games where it's one you have that thing of that you almost start to think especially the narrative uh, because I think that was one of its that game's strongest assets you begin to forget bits and pieces of it but start but you can still remember how much you appreciated it or enjoyed it yeah. and um yeah that that kind of uh, that um opens up the opens up the kind of the door for for returning to that game I was just trying to find something. There was something I was reading the other day. Um, I, I, do you know what I think it was? It was basically, it, it, I, I was reminded that um, I was took briefly took an interest in the career of a, a writer and narrative director in the games industry uh, called uh, Mary DeMarle. Um, and she was the senior narrative director on Guardians of the Galaxy. And that followed on from her work also at IDROS on... Uh, the more recent Deus Ex games, like Mankind Divided and Human Revolution, which I also thought were fantastic. And I'm pretty sure she has now left to join Bioware and she is heading up the future of Mass Effect. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So, um, I, oh, I can't just. Okay. That's interesting because, like, you could see how someone with um, the narrative chops from, like, Guardians and what they did with that could actually really work on a Mass Effect. Yes. Because it's totally similar. Yeah, I, I, I again, I don't, I don't know what what inspired me to kind of go down that rabbit hole the other day and spend, you know, half an hour on Moby Games kind of tracking stuff. But yes, she went from I've got it in front of me now from narrative designer and lead writer on Human Revolution to executive narrative director on Mankind Divided to narrative lead on Guardians and now as a senior narrative director at Bioware. Um, and Lord knows they need someone like her. So uh, yeah. Uh, well, if it, I, I say, if Andromeda and 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 Anthem were anything to go by, they need someone like her. But um, uh, it's it's funny because with um with Guardians, I'd I'd love to go back and replay that game multiple times. Just because for anyone who didn't play, like they had it, they they included. Obviously, it's not like a branching narrative thing because you can't do that really yeah. properly. But the uh, you could effectively, like in some situations, be a dick and not get people on your side or you could be a good person and get them on your side and the end of the game uh had this yeah, big battle I, I think we did want to talk about it at the time because we didn't want to give stuff away but it kind of yeah. reminded me of the end of god of war ragnarok where you have okay. people who are your mates who you've helped out and earlier in the game who then come to help you but actually guardians did it much better because it, it actually seemed to have like an impact whereby like if you if cosmo if you um 
if you, I can't remember how what happens, but if you were like good to Cosmo and you did something Cosmo liked, then nowhere would turn up right at the end, and they'd use this like giant cannon thing to uh, or, or laser gun or whatever to blast away load the enemies. And if you didn't have that, you'd have to have fought them. And then you have like this space dragon. If you're nice to it, it helps you. And if if you weren't, then it wouldn't come and help you. And just this is fun stuff in that. It's just fun, man. It's just oh yeah, fun. Uh, yeah. Especially especially like. And to go full circle, that kind of reminds me of uh, of Mass Effect and anyone who played, say, Mass Effect 2 and didn't understand sort of loyalty missions or any of that stuff or, or parry on the renegade decision-making and just got all of their crew killed permanently in Mass Effect 2. <laughs> I'm sure there's someone out there who just, like, wandered into the end of that game, unsure that that was even possible, like, had bad relationships with anyone, hadn't had done any loyalty quests, chose the wrong person for every single role on that mission. I just killed everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was left with a very different Mass Effect 3, which Abs- is fun. Absolutely. Like that that sort of stuff makes can make a game, which uh, no, I think that's, that's fun. But and, and that, that's me done anyway. What have you been uh, playing or doing this week? Um, well, it's kind of been pretty bite-sized for me. Um, and one of the things I've been taking advantage of, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, we're still kind of in the hangover period following Summer Game Fest and the various showcases of the debate of the last week. But that means one good thing that usually comes out this uh, time of year is demos. Um, uh, one of which was is kind of one of the more talked about demos, uh, you know, amongst you know, people online, online people in the past week, which is Final Fantasy 16. Uh, that demo, of course, out on the PS5, which I played. And it's kind of a, it's a kind of a a weird take on a demo in that it's not actually a demo. It's sort of the first two hours of the game that it then sort of cuts off at a, at a very key story point and your save data will carry over to the final game if you continue, if you decide that you want to purchase it and continue that adventure. And I think Final Fantasy 16 it seems pretty good. Um, I know some people are you know, fucking head over heels for this video game and are pre-ordering it and are going crazy and... It's received a lot of positive press in the last couple of weeks as people have kind of got hands-on with it, and I think a lot of that press is uh, really well-deserved. I just think, and I'm conscious of the fact, that I am not a Final Fantasy guy. Um, I've tried at times to be a Final Fantasy guy, um, and it hasn't always worked. Uh, The closest it came to working, uh, perhaps because I was at my oldest and most mature and my most world-weary, was uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake uh, when that came out three years ago, and... I had a good time with that. Um, I, I, was, I was frustrated by a number of different things, but overall I enjoyed myself. And I think that if I stuck with or purchased and then stuck with Final Fantasy 16, I'd have a similar experience. There's a certain amount of patience that I feel is required of me, like almost waiting for Stockholm Syndrome to settle in and the kind of what I see, at least, or I interpret as slightly weird, stilted writing uh voice acting, line delivery, uh, cutscene direction and and blocking and pacing. Everything just always feels slightly off to me with Final Fantasy in a way that it takes me a little while to wrap my head around. And that was present a number of times, even just in this uh, sort of two-hour-long demo for 16. The thing that feels different this time around, um, one one is the combat system, which is a a real-time combat system that I think was primarily designed by someone with a lot of experience with the Devil May Cry series. I apologies, I'm not super well read on kind of uh, on all the different individuals that have kind of come together to collaborate on 16. But I know that um, there are a lot of heavy hitters there. The combat has been a big focus, and it felt, I'd say, really good, like really tight, really responsive. Everything you'd want from 
like what is I think shaping up to be one of the more action oriented Final Fantasy games, certainly mainline Final Fantasy games. I, I will in recent memory. I will interject just to say that I, I'd seen a story in the week. I just remembered when you were talking about that um, mm. uh, to look it up. Say the it was the um, the combat director has called Final Fantasy sixteen his personal masterpiece. Yeah, and if he's worked on DMC games in the past, which I feel like he might have done. I mean, that's that's saying something. And it totally seems like it's got that that flexibility, that cliche of like it, it's going to be easy to pick up, and you, when you mash square, it's very responsive, and you 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 know you send out a a flurry or a combo of light attacks, and everything's right with the world. But then you watch someone who's played it for two hundred hours, uh, you know, pull off a combo, and you're like, I don't know how the fuck they did that. <laughs> um, Am I playing the same game? <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Um, which is you know the hallmark of a really. Uh, solid and flexible and uh, but also accessible action game and it seems like they're really trying to push to make this a game that anyone can play regardless of their experience with Final Fantasy as a series or with action games of course you've got the added benefit of this as a mainline Final Fantasy game not being connected to anything else as like as, as much as the number 16 might be off-putting to some people this is a completely new story and um, new set of characters so I'm curious I just don't know if I can jump in at full price on day one um, yeah, it, it, it's tough. I might have to remind myself what is, or I guess rather what isn't coming out in July. And if and if things are looking a little bit bare, if the cupboards are looking a bit empty, then maybe I take the plunge on payday. But yeah, I don't know. How are you feeling about it? It's it's weird. Final Fantasy. I think I bought um fifteen. Yeah, I remember. And I did. I spent a few hours. I I spent a few hours with it. I I found it very odd. Um, in so far as <laughs> not just as a Final Fantasy game, but I, because it was like this, it was supposed to be this open world um, Final Fantasy game that I was, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can totally get down with this. I've played obviously loads of open world games, and then it was so weird because it wasn't open world. It was like, yeah, it was like dictated open world. It was like a one of those um, uh, game TV shows that's like written reality. That's kind of how it felt to me. It's like you, it's supposed to be open, but it's kind of not. It's supposed to be um, combat that's completely free and flowing, but it's kind of not. Um, and I, yeah, I fell off that hard. But it's a very, very good looking game and the animations are cracking and all of that. Yeah. I would love to play the demo for this. Um, I think I will probably do that, but hmm. I'd, I'd be very surprised if that translated to me into actually like getting the game. I wonder. Because I think it... Although I can see what you saw in 15, and I, I I did at times too, although I never took the plunge, I think 16 could be more up your alley. Like, I think that... I, I genuinely think that combat system makes a really strong first impression. Right. And I think if you can kind of get down with the... What what it doesn't what doesn't do any favours, although it, you know, it's a, I guess it's a common thing, is that it's got a lot of in-media rare storytelling, which I think is some a little bit jarring when you're not already on board with Final Fantasy as a series because you're thrust into the middle of these conversations or these meetings or these wars, and there are different you know families and factions and individuals and concepts, and a lot of them are being flung at you left, right, and center in the early stages of that game. And for as much as you can pick up the kind of the Game of Thrones influences that have been touted in the build-up to this game, it, there's a lot very quickly, um, and it all seems to be like much like I complained about the Final Fantasy VII remake. Every, there's a fucking whirlwind of shit happening, and at the epicenter of it all is a protagonist who seems far more concerned with grunting or groaning than actually saying something or being someone. Right. Um, now, 
the game then flashes back and you learn a lot more about this character's backstory in a way that I think quite quickly made him more interesting than I pretty much ever found Cloud to be in Remake. Um, but then, I, I don't know, maybe I was just being a bit too... I, I, I just didn't like a lot of the writing in Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I, I, there's some of that present here, but there's some stuff that seems to be better presented as well. Um, right. So, yeah. We'll see. Interesting. Well, I, well, you never know. Maybe by next week I will have uh, played the demo as well and then I'll have my yeah. own. I'll be curious on your thoughts. We'll, we'll also have reviews, I assume, by this time next week. So we'll be able to, you'll be able to scratch your head as you sit there saying, I played two hours of one of the worst games I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I tell you, it's got a 97 on Metacritic. Uh, yeah. Probably not, but yeah. Um, and then uh, two more quick ones from the kind of the indie uh, scene. Uh, there's a, a demo out now, I think on most platforms for Viewfinder, which people might remember as the game where you kind of have a, it's like a puzzler that kind of visually as reminiscent of things like maybe The Witness, um, but you have a Polaroid camera, you take uh, snaps of the environment around you or take, or you and you use these photos to create extensions of the world. So like um, that you might find a picture or a painting of like a weird staircase and you hold that up in front of your eyes and go click and then that physically manifests in the environment in a way that when you first do it is really kind of uh, surreal and I actually kind of cackled the first time I did it. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, the demo starts presenting you with prefabbed photos or paintings or drawings. Uh, and even at some point, it even goes into kind of like stills from certain games and like ripoffs of Tetris and Super Mario Brothers um, to kind of introduce you to the concept of how you can play stuff in the environment and it becomes an extension of that environment. Um, and then you get to the point, like I said, where you end up with a camera yourself and you're kind of thinking about how can I take a picture of like a chair and then place it in the distance so that it becomes like a massive chair. Um, again, it, it riffs off some ideas that we've seen in other sort of first person puzzle games, uh, in the past, but I think is enough of a unique, uh, I'm trying to avoid, uh, puns here, but enough of a new unique perspective to kind of carve out its own, um, sort of spot and for anyone i didn't do a great job explaining it but if you just look at the trailer any trailer for this game is called viewfinder you'll immediately see what i'm talking about and if you like all i can tell you is that my reaction to doing those things in the demo was the exact same as my reaction to the first time i saw them being done in a trailer which was oh shit <laughs> um and that's that's pretty cool when games nowadays make you, something makes you do that in a game you've kind of conjured up to me the um i played a bit of um Oh my goodness! I'm really better remember the name now. The one where you kind of you had you you're in an environment and you can go bigger or smaller, and it's got a, a, a layout of the world in the center of the game world. Oh, I, like. I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's it has a story. It's like a romance story that's played in yes. VO over the top. Oh God, what was that called? It was a PlayStation Plus game. It was. I played and, it and I finished it, and I can't remember its name. And you can move things in the little world and move things in the big world, and then you get out of the big world into another world, and then you can see everything. That yeah, it's very very surreal but that kind of perspective jarring but very clever puzzling maquette thank you maquette that was it yes yeah yeah it kind there's of another yeah there's another one that again I, I can't remember its name but i've every time i see it in a trailer um it I, i'm super impressed by it and it plays on how big something how big an object is relative to how close to your view it is and right. so like if you imagine like in like a chair if you hold the chair 
right in front of your face and then to sort of drop it, it manifests in the environment as massive because that's kind of what it looked like. But if you push it away and make it smaller and then drop it, it manifests as tiny. And it, it's got, a, a, I, I, I should remember the names for all these first puzzle puzzle titles, but I, I, I can't. That's what's funny is it always makes me think of the bit from uh, Father Ted where he's trying to explain to Father Dougal, he's like, he's got a small model of a cow and he's like, this is small, but those are far away. And he's like pointing out the yes. window because he doesn't understand that, that that idea of distance. Yes, or or in uh, or in of course in the in the comedy film Four Lions, where uh, one of the terrorists buys what he uh, insists is a proper AK forty seven replica, but when it arrives, it is like you know <laughs> fucking ten inches long. So he suggests they just hold it closer to the camera. He also at one point implies that it only looks small because he's got big hands. When in fact, it's like, like I said, it's like it's like an eight-inch long AK forty-seven replica. I think that's yeah. a that's a line lots of men have tried to use over the over big, the years. Big hands, brother. Big hands. Um, thoroughly, I, I don't I don't know. There might be some people who find the film Four Lines a bit strong by today's standards, but if that's on streaming platforms, um, that is one that I would recommend. To just about anyone. Um, and one, one last quick one, Jonesy, um, which I, 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 I uh, don't know if you remember from the uh, Xbox showcase, I think it was, but it made a, an interesting first impression on both of us. And turns out it's got a demo on Steam. Juicehaw. Oh, yeah. Just had. Uh, yes. Yeah. It turns out we were right. Uh, Juicehaw is, in fact, a French word. Okay. And it basically means uh, lo like low tide, which I think the relevance here is that this is essentially set in. An environment where it appears as though this kind of tower and this big mountainside have now only revealed themselves because all the water has kind of left this environment. Right, you play as this sort of this lone explorer who is uh, ascending this mountain or this tower, and uh, as they do so, finding more about the kind of the people who lived there along the way. And as we speculated at the time when we saw uh, saw it uh, debut during that uh, during that showcase, it is essentially a rock climbing game, um, uh, and that's really cool. Uh, you, you know, uh, it kind of, it starts off with, so you, you, you reach for holdings with the left analog stick and you grab them with your right hands on the right trigger and your left hands on the left trigger. So you only have to worry about your arms and the legs will follow. Where it gets interesting is that up to four times you can kind of like, uh, hook your, uh, rope into the, 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 you know, the face of the wall or whatever, which obviously acts as a safety in case you fall in the, um, in the fall further up and it's kind of like a self-made checkpointing system but it also allows for other features like if you uh hook yourself into the wall and create a new kind of like point there um you can actively lower yourself an anchor an anchor thank you then you can like uh create more given the rope and start like wall running left to right to kind of okay. cover big uh, distances horizontally there are times where you almost use it in like a grappling hook or a rappel style fashion so a lot of kind of interesting climbing or climbing adjacent functions that all stem from this uh rope that you can kind of like reel back in instantly as well um i think that what was interesting though is that rather than being like a game where you're upgrading your stamina or upgrading the length of your rope this seems far more intent to be a slightly more calm meditative experience where it's like hey slowly climb this mountain at your own pace with you know uh sort of mechanics that are intriguing but never truly challenging or like right I don't, this doesn't seem like a game that's interested in creating a moment where like 
oh, to get to the peak of this mountain is going to be really fucking hard. Like, you're going to have to do some extreme stuff with your fingers. Like, you're not. I think this is just about a character making its way up a mountain slash tower, finding more about the the the, the civilization or the people who kind of lived there before. Um, it, it, it's inter- it's interesting. Um, I think it's. I hope it's going to be a Game Pass game because that seems like a an appropriate kind of place to peer, you know, to, to experience something like that. And I also hope that it doesn't run more than four or four or five hours. I hope this is a game that kind of knows the lane it's in without sounding too harsh. Um, I think that's fair. I think I think that sounds. Having seen obviously the the trailers and stuff, yeah, I, I think I would think you're bang on with with that. You I mean no one wants to play a twenty hour climbing game with like little progression and skills and things where you're just yeah, like that's gonna, that's gonna get old fast. Yeah, and like a, a silent protagonist, like you said, like no upgrade systems. Even like it doesn't even seem to have collectibles. You just kind of like find notes written by people who came before in some right. kind of loose sense. So yeah. I hope it doesn't outstay its welcome, but I think its climbing fundamentals are going to be interesting enough in like almost like a Death Stranding way. Like this is like someone saw Death Stranding was like, let's make the rock climbing equivalent of that, but also like strip it right back down so that if the game's three to four hours, that will be people getting their fill. But you'll still have a meditative climbing experience where traversal is the game's progression system. Okay. No, yeah, Um, that sounds no, It sounds good. Sounds decent. Yeah, that demo available on Steam for anyone who wants to check that out. Um, and with that, Jonesy, how about we head back into the world of um, the the? How we head back to the scrapings that we uh, mentioned earlier. <laughs> let's let's do it. Let's scrape. Okay, let's scrape. Well, um, as be as, as any good gaming podcasters would, we are always desperate for an opportunity to talk about Grand Theft Auto Six because it means we can put it in the tags, maybe even <laughs> put it in the title, maybe even put it in the thumbnail. We can't do any of those things this time. Uh, that would be really clutching at straws. But we can talk a little bit about one of Rockstar Games' founders, Dan Hauser, and what he has going on next. Um, so it was it 2020, Jonesy, that Dan Hauser, one of them, of course, the Hauser brothers, left the company? I believe it was um, 2020, yes. Yeah, I have a vague recollection of us chatting about that from Chris's living room. It was at that phase of the, uh, the, of the suit show. Um uh, he was not just um, a co-founder of Rockstar, by the way. He was also a creative director and was the head writer for a lot of their games, of course, in the Grand Theft Auto series, as well as Red Dead Redemption and Bully. Um, he left uh, a handful of years ago, and exactly what he was doing next wasn't entirely clear. I think there were some like rumors and murmurs here or there. I think at one point he was even being tied to some weird, dodgy like NFT or kind of like, I don't know, th- there was some bullshit but now um, we have a little bit more clarity on exactly what he's creating, or at least the kind of things he wants to create next. And it is a less bullshit. It doesn't seem to be some weird NFT or uh, or like cryptocurrency adjacent uh, plan. Um, he's launched a company called Absurd Ventures, uh, who are going to focus on creating characters and worlds that can be expressed in many different forms, Jonesy, including video games, which I guess is the obvious starting point, but also TV, books, film, graphic novels, and podcasts. Uh, the quote that we've got from Dan himself is, we're building absurd ventures to create new universes and tell great stories wherever and however we can. Um, and their tagline, for what it's worth, is storytelling, philanthropy, and ultraviolence, which I presume that kind of loop means they're going to create a fantastic product, storytelling, they're going to give all the money away to charity that they make from it, philanthropy, they're then going to realize that made them broke, and they're going to, there's infighting will follow, and that's the ultraviolence. 
I think you're probably right. It, okay, so we said that we don't think it's bullshit like the NFT thing. I kind of think it's a bit of bullshit. Oh, okay. It's only because if you look at their sort of like Twitter that they've come out with, it's only been alive sort of um, three days at this point. Some of it is, it's kind of, what, what I think the word is like, so new companies often want to be disruptive because there's this yes. big buzzword that, oh, if, you, if you're disruptive, if you disrupt like the ecosystem that you get into as a business, then that's how you like make the money and you become the new hot topic on in that area. It is a bit like the fact that they're sort of saying, we're, we're going to go after not just video games, but we're going after all of these different platforms. And yeah, the tagline weirded me out a bit because it's like, it's yeah. the philanthropy thing is like, well, you've, you've not really got a company yet. You've not made anything. Maybe worry yeah, about too. getting some money before you talk about who you're going to give it all your money away to. And then the ultra violence thing just for me is pure. Um, how do we, how do we like, how do we disrupt? How do we become a disruptor? Yeah. Just say ultra, say like, yeah, we're ultra violence. We can use violence. And then I think it was on their Twitter. They also said, um, it's something like they bringing people together by giving everyone something to hate. Okay. Yeah. Like the proper edgy kind of like, we're not like other creative companies. But the irony is of course, they're like every other creative company and, and they, they spread themselves too thin. They try and make multiple IPs across multiple different types of media and i it's a bit of a weird i, I yeah it's a bit of a strange one yeah also uh, just a quick interjection here when you read something like uh, when it, when a company says that they're willing to go into video games tv books film graphic novels and podcasts and the founder says we want to tell stories wherever and however we can there's a little bit of desperation in that isn't there like Oh, you yeah. will do anything. Oh, yes, we'd love to make a video game, but you want us to do a scripted podcast? We're there. We're your company. Like, like, wouldn't it be more ambitious to, to, ambitious to say, no, we're a video game company or we're a feature film company? Like, I get wanting to do everything, but saying you're going to do everything and then saying we're going to tell stories however and wherever we can is a bit like we'll just see where the money is and kind of hope for the best. It feels a little like that they're that they're like, uh, who, who are you? Like, what, what do you do? What are absurd, uh, absurd ventures doing? It's like we've got Dan Hauser, and you're like, that's wicked, yeah. From from um, from Rockstar, totally. But what are you doing? And it's like we've got Dan Hauser, and you're like, yeah. oh, th this is a what? Just get the people on board, make up the bullshit like media stuff, and then you're hoping build it, and they will come, and then you'll suddenly be inspired, and you'll have all these amazing stories, IP like. But you've got at the moment you've got nothing. You've got people with yeah. some capital. You've probably got some venture capitalists backing you up. They've said that they will announce in future who's ba who's backing them financially. Um, every, a lot of stuff they're putting out is like this disruptive kind of stuff. It's also scattershot. If you go to their website, it's sort of like uh, retro footage with uh, meaningless um, phrases uh, just to try and be like the world is different. Can you dream again? we're here to make the world change. Like, oh, you're not saying anything. You're and then then another video that they put out will have like a, a cyborg with like light up eyes and it's looking shifty. Um, it's it's very strange. Um, yes. It's, and what's strange is like, so when Hideo Kojima, and I don't want to, you know, just keep banging on about Kojima, mm. but when Kojima did it with Kojima Productions, um, you know that there was there are stories and characters and and ludicrous narratives behind his eyes just screaming to get out and with him it's almost like how can you control him and put it down and, and get it out and make money out of it right i imagine that's how the pro how it went and, you know but you know that you can do it 
this seems a little bit like the other way around. Like they've got a creative director who I don't know how much of a hand he had in actually sort of like um, making those go the creative directions of those games and how much he did yeah. that and how much of it is it no he's just a good businessman who can pull the right people together to make stuff um and it can be really different when you go out on your own and you try and do something with people like don't like so dan hauser was always sort of described as the more creative of the hauser brothers and that the split if you had to define one was dan was creative sam was business but like those rockstar games have always felt like very collaborative processes there are a lot of names, whether you're talking about the founding of the company or the, you know, the creative individuals behind each GTA entry or Red Dead or wherever you want to go. Like, yes, the houses' names were often, you know, plastered all over the place, but there were a lot of other people there as well. And I think that's why, you know, there's a general confidence a vibe that even in this post Dan Hauser, post Leslie Benzies environment the Rockstar's going into, like there's no one sitting around and going, God, GTA 6 is going to be dead in its ass just because Dan Hauser's not around. I think that's kind of an accepted thing that he was a talented dude who I'm sure informed a lot of the creative direction that company went in and was a very important force in introducing those franchises. But like, how like, it's exactly what you said. How that applies to future ventures is very hard to determine, especially when you're not talking about a very singular, very unique creative presence uh, that someone like Hideo Kojima would be a more uh, pertinent example of. Although, speaking of Leslie Benzies, that's perhaps one thing that um, that Dan Hauser does have going for him is that when you're talking about the backing these companies are receiving, when you're talking about the kind of capital or the venture capitalists who might be interested in something like this, Leslie Benzies is like an advertisement for the fact that having your name associated with franchises like Grand Theft Auto can't be a bad thing because, of course, he founded Build-A-Rocket Boy all the way back in 2017, so that company is now uh, six years old. Uh, and then, of course, they are working on the hard-to-describe and hard-to-pin-down open-world game everywhere that has absolutely has metaverse elements to it, where it's kind of like there is a there is a game at the forefront of it that players can enter and they can go to different districts to take part in different you know spins like on certain genres. But there are also game within a game elements present in everywhere. Even the name itself suggests like. Like the idea of, hey, I was one of the key uh, figures like in, in creating, in making Grand Theft Auto the monster that it is, and I want to create the uh, the Ur game, and it's called Everywhere, and people threw money at him. I'm sure that, that that's something that Dan Hauser is well aware of, and is like, I just need to create a company and start like loosely throwing my weight around and pretending I'm going to disrupt the creative, any creative industry that will have me, and money will follow. And it probably did. There was it's funny you say about like uh, uh, build a rocket boy. I I signed up for the um, to get notifications about everywhere when you know as the when they came out and during ga uh, summer game fest. I think it was like a couple of days later. I had an email to say um, uh, watch the trailer for I can't remember the name of it, but so they'd had a trailer for everywhere and then they had a trailer for like one of the games contained within everywhere, like one of the, the ways that sort of was it Mind's Eye? Yeah, yes, Mind's Eye. Thank you. Um, yeah. And so I had a, a notification, an email notification to say, uh, watch the trailer for Mind's Eye. And I, I watched it. I started to watch it. I was like, I've seen this already. Like, what, why are they sending me a notification about this? And it was, there's no new trailers out. It was just kind of like, until new stuff comes out, why don't you check out these trailers that we've got? And I was like, is that really a, a new a new email to tell me to watch something I've watched months ago? Like, it yeah. feels like a bit vaporary at the moment, just in so far as uh, how, what is this? Like, is the, how, yeah. 
Yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. a bit random at the moment, but and it, and it doesn't help when the idea or the elevator pitch for something is so broad and so all-encompassing that you just kind of sit back and go like, okay, buddy, yeah. Like you left Rockstar, you're going to create a brand new studio from scratch up in Scotland that is going to create like all of this. And it's one of those Cloud things. Imperium games. Well, Cloud Imperium are a weird example because they, they, they've done the, the fascinating move of like continuing to keep up the the you know the impressional I, I don't want to call it the illusion but they're giving people the impression that they're still plotting forwards on whatever fucking you know war path they see themselves as on and they're continuing to let you fund it ad nauseum I, I I think everywhere will be one of those projects and we talk about these sometimes when we see very ambitious looking trailers during, during showcases during things like Summer Game Fest all the time this is something that will come out it will just look different to what we imagined like they will reach yeah. the point where they were like okay. How do we scale this down, or how do we turn this into a product that we that goes on store shelves, or whatever their you know their end goal is for it? They start to maybe sand down or smooth some of the edges until they have a product that can be released or is easy to absorb and understand and digest for consumers. Because I know a lot of people who will buy GTA Six who wouldn't understand what Everywhere was if you tried to explain it to them, and that's right. still you know the uphill challenge that I think companies you know the biggest companies in the world are continuing to face meta of course foremost amongst them when it comes to explaining it some very rich people's unique visions for the future at the moment and how some video game companies are trying to tap into that but i don't know i where that leaves absurd ventures though remains to be seen um it's one of those no absolutely like it i th for me it's 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 gonna work of course it will it's like because it's got dan hauser attached to it because of the net the pedigree like that he can trace back I, I i think at the moment though we're probably in the weird kind of early times where in a year's time maybe or maybe in two years time these early first steps these baby steps of uh of media or of of twitter or of videos that they're putting out will probably be long forgotten and there'll be a, a quite different um you know more traditional looking um video game uh developer or, or publisher and developer will be out there and yeah. they won't be talking about because this, this is the thing like you you can talk about podcasts and you can talk about um animation and you can talk about films and, and graphic novels when you have an ip which everyone wants so like the matrix right. the matrix covered all of these areas when it came out because it was such a hot property but the animatrix came out after the matrix like the matrix had already built done the groundwork it had already made the wachowskis household names of like this amazing vision that they had they'd already made like shitloads of films before the matrix came out they'd all been attached to a load of stuff in the in, in movie making it, they didn't just say first up oh we're gonna make the animatrix like that's not where they started they had to start somewhere else so yeah i, I think this will get um like focused i think they'll manage to focus this project down into being something a bit more i hope yes I hope so. I think you're right with Everair as well. I think Everair is going to be the same deal. It's going to be yeah, it's the same. Which, you know, I, I, I kind of understand it a little bit. You know, these people probably go out into the big wide world after working at Rockstar for pretty much their whole careers. And there probably are a lot of people around them who kind of gas them up and they probably get very excited about, you know, what the potential for this space or, you know, the, the kind of products that they're going to be creating is. But at the same time, selfishly, I'd be a lot more excited if Dan Hauser came out and was like, I've created a um, a small video game studio when we're going to going to be creating a mid-budget, you know, action adventure video game that 
like doing what a lot of you know developers have done in recent years. Like I'm going to spin off and create a project that is very heavily inspired by the shit that I used to make. Um, and there have been success stories and not so successful stories in that space um, in recent years. And I would, that would have been cool to see from one of the GTA guys in inverted commas, but not to be. I think the thing that drives it over me is you can look at people that absolutely should know 100% what they're doing. They've been doing it for years and they still fuck it up. Like, you know, think of it as something like Marvel's Avengers or um, yeah. like Anthem, you know, any of these games that should have been easy wins and they weren't. And so when a new company comes out and is like, we're going to do it better and different, you're like, mate, just try and make something that works first. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, it's interesting, that, in fact, that you mentioned Marvel's Avengers because Marvel's one of the fascinating kind of elements that was so uh, notable about uh, Marvel's Avengers uh, fuck-uppery was some of the talent involved. You had the likes of Crystal Dynamics leading the charge, and of course, there were talks that uh, you know other teams, uh, uh, you know, around IDOS, for example, were helping out in that big push uh, under Square Enix's banner um, to get that game where it needed to be. Uh, in the end, it didn't get to where it needed to be, and Square Enix decided that they were going to sell off most of their Western development arm for a fee in the range of $300 million. And of course, if there were one company in this, the year of our Lord 2023, who were there to snap them up, to gobble them up in any IP. Who would wrap their arms around them and take them in? Yeah, who would, who would welcome them with a warm, loving embrace, but the embracer group themselves? Um, and that has been a familiar story that we've heard, you know, far and wide over the last couple of years. Embracer continuing to grow, making high-profile investments all over around the industry. Um, I, I think at the moment they've got it up to twelve operating groups overseeing one hundred and thirty-eight internal studios with an ownership or control of around eight hundred and fifty IPs, um, which you'd think would leave them in a pretty good position to start making hella money um, <laughs> by taking these IPs to creating video games based off these IPs and putting high quality video games in the hands of consumers. Unfortunately, um, Embracer have been struggling a little bit on just about every front, whether it's creating video games, creating high quality video games, shout out Saints Row, um, but then also for that reason, not ending up in the hands of consumers. And it also is worth noting that they've had a few trouble with some of their business, de- a bit of trouble with some of their business dealings of late as well. You might remember that um, I think just last month, the company the shares uh, in the company nosedived by over forty percent when a what was to be a major two billion dollar partnership fell through unexpectedly at the eleventh hour. Um, and now, Jonesy, to cut to the chase, we are dealing with the repercussions from that deal deal falling through. Um, CEO of Embrace of the Embrace Group, Lars. W- uh, I'm gonna, are we going to say Wingerfors? I th- yeah, Lars. Wing. I don't actually. I don't know. I can't remember. Lars. Yeah, v- Wingerfors. I don't know. Wingerfors. Wingerfors. Well, let's just call him Lars because right. we're, we're going to be. We're going to feel like we're close mates by the end of the segment. Anyway, uh, he put an open letter out on the company's website saying that he, uh, he, they needed to make Embracer leaner, stronger, and more focused, self-sufficient company. Um, for anyone for anyone who maybe hasn't worked in the corporate environment before or hasn't heard a CEO referring to a need to make a company leaner and leaner. stronger in the past, yeah. <laughs> what that means is it's layoff time. Um, so, yeah, leaner, stronger, and more efficient are all uh, bad terms you don't want to hear in business. Um, exactly. Someone said to me the other day, it's funny every time 
uh, a company talks about making something like leaner and more efficient, what they mean is they're going to fire half the staff, but expect you to do twice as much if you're still thereafter. So you're like, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, uh, exactly. And um, it you know, rarely ends well. Um, and whilst uh, Lars has been coy, I will say, though, on the exact specifics of, of what that will entail, uh, Embracer currently, uh, uh, his words not mine, engages close to 17,000 people. And while that number will be lower by the end of the year, it's too early to give an exact forecast on this. Um, Josie, a lot of people pointing out that, while of course no one in Embracer could have foreseen that that, ma- that w- would have been a fairly significant $2 billion deal was going to fall through last month. And obviously there was that famous moment where I think Lars himself did a series of interviews like the morning after that deal had fallen through at like midnight the night before. And he looked like a broken man. Um, I don't think this was in anyone's plans, as Leos rarely are. If we're, you know, with you know, in the best case scenario, um, but a lot of people are pointing out that this is a very strange situation where a company makes headlines. Let's be real for its high-profile investments, continue to spend, continues to spend money. Um, you know, we talked about that Square Enix uh, to, uh, sort of partial acquisition of three hundred million dollars earlier. There are other high-profile ones. Um, Obviously, it owns companies such as THQ Nordic, uh, Koch Media slash Deep Silver, Saber Interactive, Gearbox. Um, in December of 2021, it purchased a French board game company called Asmodee for 2.75 billion euros. That was its largest acquisition to date. Um, the board, the Gearbox acquisition was 1.4 billion dollar euros. Uh, <laughs> that's two currencies. 1.4 billion dollars. Um, I like that billion dollar euros. That's going to be the uh, that's um, what that's is the new currency. It's like. Euro isn't that like euro dollars or something? I don't, I don't. I can't remember. No, I don't remember. Yeah. Um. Basically, they've been spending a lot of money um on on, on things where people haven't always been able to see the inherent value of these deals, and now they are restructuring. I mean, am I am I wrong for thinking that's a bad look when like one year you're spending nearly three billion euros on a board game company, and the next year a $2 billion deal, so a smaller number, uh, falling through, sees your shares nosedive by over 40% and your company needing to become a leaner. I think the problem is, I think, with a lot of this sort of stuff is the the uh, the um, addiction to like looking at share prices and to, and to speculating and stuff sometimes isn't that important. It's more like how the company's actually running behind the scenes and how like cash flow is working, what's going on in the industries. And we know that in the last sort of few years, it's not been good. You know, COVID had a hell of a hit on video games. And if you're a massive company like Embracer Group and you're take, you're buying up all these companies and then effectively taking them under your umbrella and then you are, and then everyone in the whole industry is struggling, you're going to struggle. You know, you're not meeting your the positions you wanted to be in or you, your forecasts. And if your forecasts are bad, you start talking about, well, how can we save money? And then if you have all of these companies under underneath you, yeah, the first thing you're going to do is start talking about making efficiencies and and getting leaner and and what are our overheads on uh, staff costs? Oh, they're they're excessive because we've got eighteen thousand people underneath us or, or engaged by us or whatever they say. So that they yeah. say, actually, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to lay a shitload of those people off. But and this is the other side of I think when we all get excited when a small studio that we really like is bought by a big company and then we say oh, now they've got fuck you money and they can do what, they can finally fulfill the visions that they've had in right. the past. The other side of that coin is when that company with all that money loses a shit ton of that money, 
they're going to fire shitloads of your staff because that's how that's the only way they know to um, dig themselves out of a hole. And the first right. thing they're going to do is cancel projects, lay people off, try and focus on things that do make them money, um, and to double down on things that they think might make them more money, and to not be as experimental. And it it kind of in bad financial times, it, it leads to really bad outcomes. I mean, maybe smaller companies could weather the storm in some respects. Um, honestly, you know, I think it was, um, it's uh, Double Fine talk about mm. um, in that documentary, talk about back in the day when they effectively would have gone bust if it wasn't for the fact that, um, yeah. what is his name? Tim, Tim um, Schaefer. Tim Schaefer, thank you. Uh, Tim Schaefer's mate gave them a shitload of money and bailed the company out. But obviously you can't go to your mate who's got, just 10 billion knocking around if you're embracing group and get bailed out. Yeah. But you can if you're sometimes, if you're a smaller, um, if you're a smaller company, but this is, it's a really sad state of affairs and it's going to be really sad to see all these people laid off. Um, yeah. We don't know how many at this point, like I said, but. No, we don't. And, and the, it's, yeah, it's, it's people laid off, which is sad. And then slightly less sad, but still worth noting, uh, projects canceled. And like one of the things you talked about was that, like, Embracer has now racked up 850 IPs from around gaming, and a lot of their strategy has been to take over kind of beloved uh, franchises. Like I'm, I joked about Saints Row earlier, but that was absolutely something I was looking at and saying, God, I really hope Volition benefit from this new cash flow and and kind of not only is that not materialize in in the in the in the form of the game, um, but you know a lot of the way that Embracer reacted to Saints Row's failure and what happened to Volition and their kind of like seemingly folding into gearbox kind of also painted a weird picture for how embracer might react to games that don't meet their targets and aware also where embracers forecasts might be for for how successful some of these projects might end up being like the vibe i got at the time was that here's a company who was picking up i don't even i don't even know like Pick a pick a, any number of licenses. Whether you could even start with Saints Row and drastically overestimating like those franchises' capacity to, to sell big numbers with today's audiences. Um, it that's all of which is a roundabout way of saying I actually think that for all the money they spent, Embracer are holding a lot of like dead wood at the moment. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Um, and maybe this helps in that sense. Like maybe if the IPs that are cut or that don't get worked on, or the projects that are scrapped are from things that um, that don't have a future, that might be beneficial. But one of the things that we were going to discuss is whether or not our old pal Lars and his team around him are best suited um, to <laughs> to pick out which projects are winners. Because uh, one thing I will say is that I, I think the rest of the year looks fairly strong for Embracer. For, any, uh, for anyone wondering, Remnant 2, Warhammer 40k Space Marine 2, Payday 3, Hot Wheels Unleashed 2, Arizona Sunshine 2, Alone in the Dark, and Homeworld 3, to name but a few, are all Embracer games slated um, for the rest of this year. I think some of those titles have the capacity to sell okay, but none of them are like world beaters. They're not money spinners, any of them, are they? That's that's the problem. Yeah. Um, we also know, we like have confirmation at this point um, that Crystal Dynamics have confirmed that they are... Uh, that there will be no impact in their own words on their continuing efforts um, on Perfect Dark, who they're working on with the initiative, and the kind of reboot of the Tomb Raider series that's happening in collaboration with Amazon Games. But the problem is that in and amongst all of this, Lars was talking about the ways in which they can bounce back, and as you said, 
None of those titles we mentioned just there were money spinners. What Lars sees is the potential money spinners. And one of the things he has picked out is Lord of the Rings. Now, for anyone that's wondering, the uh, most recent release with uh, the command of the Lord of the Rings banner was, of course, Lord of the Rings Gotham. Um, it's weird. I've got a bit of a short-term memory problem this podcast. I can't really remember how well-received that game was or what impact, positive or negative, it had on the Lord of the Rings brand. But I will say, I I'm going to take Lars at his words. He said, quote, I mean, we own Lord of the Rings, and we know we need to be exploiting the Lord of the Rings in a very significant fashion and turning that into one of the biggest gaming franchises in the world. And that's obviously something we're going to be doing. Um, so let me ask you, Jonesy, hypothetically, if you were um, an employee at an unnamed studio that fell under the banner of the Embracer Group, uh, layoffs were coming. The company's stock nosedived by 40%. Uh, uh, projects were being cancelled left, right, and centre, and you're wondering about what the future looked like, and you heard your CEO in the wake of the Lord of the Rings Gollum release, which I don't think Embracer really had anything to do with. I think that was a pre-standing agreement and a game that had been in development for some time. But he described uh, the need to exploit the Lord of the Rings in a very significant fashion and turn it into the, one of the biggest game fran gaming franchises in the world. How sure would you be that you were going to continue to be able to pay your rent? Uh, I'd be rubbing my hands together, Jamie, knowing that I already had a sequel to Gollum uh, in my in my midst, and that I'd already been given a tasty little loan, or a, a, no, not a loan, what was it, a gift from a German um, government? Was it like a local? I can't remember. Like, so we, yeah, we German government grant. Yeah, no, like yeah, this is this is bizarre. Like the, this quote is, I understand what he's saying in this, insofar as. I can imagine that if you are a company with a whole load of developers underneath you and you're like, we own freaking Lord of the Rings, man, you'd you'd think that you should be able to monetize that um, into video games. And you know, and if you're out there, if you're watching people play for, de for decades, um, like uh, games like um, League of Legends or um, you know, any of that sort of ilk, you'd be thinking... Well, we can just we can just make that sort of game that people pump money into, and we'll just skin it um, like it's Lord of the Rings, and we'll make a bloody fortune. I can absolutely imagine like maybe that's the kind of thinking that they do, thinking that it should be a foregone conclusion that Lord of the Rings is a massive money spinner. But the problem is, yeah, you just got to look at Gollum and see how utter shite that was, because they thought that all you needed was the t was the name Lord of the Rings, yeah, and therefore you make money. But that's not how that works. You have to actually no. come up with a good video game. Well, it applies to other things as well, doesn't it? Because um, it wasn't that long ago that Amazon Games announced they're going to develop and publish a Lord of the Rings MMO. Amazon themselves learned firsthand with the, um, let's call it the frosty reception that that TV show received, that again, throwing money at a license uh, like Lord of the Rings and turning that into a massive like Game of Thrones-inspired high-budget TV show, not a recipe for success just because the right name is on the box. If, no, absolutely, and I think it's. Um, I, I don't know how to. You know, if it was easy, then they'd be. Then it would be easy to do. But how do you take something like Lord of the Rings and actually do a a justifiable uh, bit of media which is going to appeal to the fans and make you a load of money? Like I've got no idea. I don't know how you do that. It's, yeah, me neither. Everyone, they thought they could do that with Marvel. They thought, you know, Square thought they could do that with um, Avengers, and they thought that they, oh, this is easy. We'll just make a co-op game. We'll make it look pretty. Um, will make, make it so you can play as your favorite characters. Come on, it's billions and billions of dollars. It's easy. And it was crap. So I can only assume that they, the Embracer have got similar ideas and they're thinking, 
no, no, it's easy. We should just be able to do this. But apparently it's not so easy. Apparently it's actually difficult. I'll work, I'll work for them. Do you know what we'll do? We'll make God of War. We'll take that and we'll reskin it so you're Aragorn. How do we, how do we get the God of War license? No, no, not, not God of War. We'll take that that type of game, the new God of War. Oh, And I we'll see. just, we'll make our own version like they did with, um, uh, what was the game? Um, the, the Gears of War ripoff that they made. I can't remember. Quant- is it oh. Quantum thingy? Yeah, I always forget it because it was a PS3 game and I was clicking break. Time. No, Quantum Break was the Remedy game. Oh, right. Like, uh, but if it did, I might have had the word Quantum in it. God, that was a weird time for games. And then you had the other one, which was um, was a God of War ripoff, which was the the, the Inferno. D- d- oh, Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno, that they did the same thing, which is just a complete ripoff. Like, uh, just do something like that with, uh, with uh, is his name Ar- Aragon? Is that the guy's name from Lord of Aragon, Lord of yeah, like Viggo Mortensen's character. Big yeah. sword instead of a big axe. Happy days. Have him running around chopping orcs. Like, yeah. Game made. Hire me. The, the, Hire me, Embracer Group. I've got it sorted. The funny thing is, like, that probably does sell, but if you'd ask me, like, from, like, a neutral perspective, what is the single biggest determining factor of whether or not a game like that goes on to be successful... Again, it's not Lord of the Rings. It's not even necessarily the genre or the fact that you're making a kind of war ripoff. It's, is it good? If you create a third-person action-adventure Lord of the Rings game that gets 92 on Metacritic, I think you would sell millions of copies of that game. Like, I genuinely think that for as much as, like, there are there are notable examples, I think one of the things that is weirdly consistent in gaming nowadays is when it comes to, and it's a very difficult field to get into, I understand, but when it comes to, big budget, you know, AAA releases, if you get to the point where you're making what is received as or acclaimed as one of the best games of the year, if you get into the high 80s, low 90s or Metacritic, I think your game will sell. I don't think there are many examples of AAA games that reach that level of acclaim and and flop. There are some, and it's disappointing. Shall I tell you one? Yeah. Embrace a group own the IP for? Guardians of the frigging Galaxy, the video game. Oh yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy was, yeah, a pretty... 80 to 90, well accepted by critics, but because, well, assuming because of what happened with Marvel Avengers, it did financially. You wonder if the IP there maybe hurt it a little bit. I'm also just looking through, I can't find many kind of concise or cohesive lists of um, everything that Embracer technically own, but I'm trying to look through stuff to see what they could bring back. I don't know if you would fancy being creative director and if any of these, Josie, let me know if anything stands out. But you could bring back Legacy of Kane. People are thirsty for that. Thief, Gex. Um, Thief was good. Uh, I liked Thief, but but again, like that's not going to make you any money. Make the best yeah. Thief game you can. It's not going to do anything. How has no one just made like an article of like, hey, here's every IP that Embracer Group owns? Um, it's one thing. One thing that I would love to know, and and maybe this is just me being completely out of the um, out of the loop. The Lord of the Rings film series, which was, that was the big boy of like Lord of the Rings, right? That's what pushed the video game sales at the time. That's what made Gollum famous. That's what did a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, those, those films finished coming out 20 years ago. Yes. So you're actually, like now, you're talking about quite a dated IP. I understand that you've, you had the Hobbit series after that and you had some other stuff come out and you've obviously like got the Amazon series. But I'm, I'm kind of thinking like Lord of the Rings is pretty old hat now. And before yeah. you can start talking, like Star Wars, before Star Wars games sort of got good again, you had a whole new 
um, you know, trilogy of movies and a whole new, like Disney brought all of those things to TV series to the, to TV and made it really good again to say we, we owe Lord of the Rings, man. It's like, yeah, but you need, you need some good Lord of the Rings movies or series or something to levitate it, to get it back up to where you need it to be in order for the games to have an audience to hit with. And I think at the moment, like that, that audience doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. And like, even if there's like, sometimes there's a sleeping audience, an audience in waiting, like you just reminded me there of something like the matrix, for example, which again, like the, the matrix, I think peaked some time ago. And even then, like there were like re real big problems in at least two thirds um, or maybe like half of the core trilogy of matrix films. If like someone came to me now, as like, I'm thinking of investing hard in the matrix as a brand or as an IP and like rolling out to make new Matrix video games, I'm, I would sit there and say, you can't put the Matrix on the box and it and it would and have it sell. I think there are a lot of, as I said, Matrix fans in waiting, like a lot of a lot of people who are interested enough in that world or that IP that the right things could bring. But like with Star Wars, like you've got to have a consistency and you've got to build things back up to the point where it's going to be. Um, you know, as big as it can be. And then you've got to keep a level of consistency, which I think Star Wars also didn't, which then saw Star Wars, I think, kind of peak, at least as far as the feature films are concerned, peak slightly early, then tail back off. But we are clearly still dealing with a, you know, a post-Star Wars comeback environment where Star Wars video games, like Outlaws announced uh, last week, can still generate a lot of excitement. It's also, I think, I think you nailed it with, by saying, if you can make a game, we don't, a Lord of the Rings game which makes you money has to be a ninety on Metacritic or something like that. It's a good, it's a good start. If and nothing if, else, and if and if you're gonna, if you have the ability to make that game anyway, let's say it wasn't Lord of the Rings, let's say it was just in a in a uh, medieval universe with orcs and dragons and whatever. Um, mm -hmm. If you can already make that video game, then even if you didn't make it Lord of the Rings, you're still going to have a very successful video game, and, and yeah, embrace a group have got plenty of developers under them who could make that sort of game. Like the fact that you own Lord of the Rings might give you a higher bump, might make you more money because like you said, sleeping audience, Lord of the Rings fans, but it's not going to make your game be good when your game is shit. Yeah, exactly. Which, like, which people get, so, that does my head in. The idea that you can just slap on an IP and go now, like, like Gollum, I mean, it's exactly what happened with Gollum, it seems. We can just slap Gollum onto a mediocre game and then it will do well in like, no, it won't. Yeah. Exactly. It, like one one kind of thing to note on just on that front before we move on is a, a bit of positive news from Bracer. Uh, Lars said, quote, our financial year started with one of our greatest successes so far, Dead Island 2, which exceeded our management's already high expectations. If Dead Island 2 came out and was in the same state as and was thus received the same way as that Saints Row reboot, Dead Island right. 2 doesn't sell nearly the amount of copies it does and doesn't become, as he described it, one of their greatest successes thus far. Dead Island 2 was massively helped by, even though it wasn't overwhelming critical acclaim, it was positive, uh, um, positive it was noise. And it was a good game. Like, it was, it was great, great word of mouth and yeah. that great story of like, oh, Dead Island 2 is real. It came out, it's a product and actually it works and it like, it's fun. That and that did so much heavy lifting for that game. That's so true. I hadn't even thought of that. You, there was almost a um, a law attached to Dead Island Two, which mm. most games don't have. So like that game was always going to get a lot of publicity, that like beyond what it would have deserved had it not been Dead Island Two. If it was just called um, Zombie Apocalypse, that would right. they would have to. You don't get the publicity that Dead Island Two got. 
Yeah. But again, the publicity got people in the door. The quality of the product was what got them to stay and yes. talk about it and regurgitate that law. Um, and that's what saw uh, the supposed sales. And that's what was missing in Saints Row. And that's what I, I think is another stark reminder of, yes, while it might be a little bit sort of, you know, it's maybe slightly silly of me to nonchalantly talk about how developers should just make a 90 plus rated game on Metacritic. I understand that that's not how it works. But again, I think it's another reminder that even when you're talking about the 70s and 80s, there's a positive correlation between how good your game is and how positive the word of mouth is and how likely you are to create a success out of it, whether you've got a, a known brand attached or not. Um, just try and make good shit, I guess, in in all walks of life, Jonesy. No, absolutely. I, I think it may, it's slightly more complicated because I imagine if you're like CEO of a company like Embracer Group and you see a game like Hogwarts Legacy, which is not a great, you know, it's not a perfect game. It's not a fantastic game, but does well and is well received and makes a lot of money. You're kind of like, well, hold on. That's Hog that's that's uh Harry Potter, that's Hogwarts. We've got Lord of the Rings. They're similar size franchises. We should be able to make the kind of money. I think the difference with something like Legacy was a lot of it was almost the opposite in that people were like, holy shit, they actually made a good Hogwarts game. Yeah. We like we weren't anticipating that. The problem that Lord of the Rings has got is they already have like quite a few Lord of the Rings games in existence. This wasn't the and the Hogwarts was like is the first Harry Potter game. This yeah. is this is this would be like, I don't know, like the sixth or maybe, or like the fifth. I've got no idea. I'm trying to think now. You've got all the Lord of the Rings trilogies. You then had Shadow of Mordor, Shadow of War, Gollum. You've got the Gimli game. So you're, I'm already at seven. There, there were like, weird, there was like, weird, like the third army or something like that. There was a, there was a turn-based RPG that came out not long after the trilogy games. There was, um, and there was the third age. Right. Um, and then there was another one that was like an action game where you played three characters at once. There was also a Hobbit game. Oh, right. So, so you're not, like an old Hobbit game, pre-movies Hobbit game. So you don't even have the luxury of saying, hey, you love the movies or you love the books, you love the movies, now play the game. It's like, you love the world, you love the movies, now play the 20th game in the franchise. This yeah. one might be good. It's just, it's much do you know, more Honestly, do you know, like one of the, I'd love, I wish we could play out hypotheticals like this in some big, super advanced <laughs> uh, like AI-powered machine that tells us what would happen. But I think one of the most successful strategies to, that uh, Embracer could could use for at least the uh, the beginnings of their like uh, in beginnings of their like reemerging the audience for Lord of the Rings games in Lord of the Rings games would be remastering or remaking the Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, and I'm sure that would be an absolute shit show in terms of licenses and 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 so on and deals they'd have to cut with movie studios, but. I reckon if you do that and you do it right, uh, I reckon that sells sells a few mil. That few milli. that would and, make more and, sense. You've whetted appetites. And it's like, oh, a Lord of the Rings game. Actually, maybe I do want to play a third person action adventure game where Gandalf shoots magic at people. Hmm. But then, then can they do that from starting with the Return of the King? Like, do they not need to go in? Do they not need to do the old Resident Evil thing of go? Here's the first Lord of the Rings. Here's because Return of the King's the second one. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, but the problem, no, Return of the King's the third one, but the problem yeah. is the 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 games, the licensed games based on the Lord of the Rings trilogy were all quite surprisingly different to each other. I think I only played one, I only played one of them, I think. Yeah, Two Towers and Return of the King were fairly similar, but uh, Return of the King was the one where they kind of like had streamlined it down to this, like just a solid 
to movie tie-in third-person action game where you bounce between like there were sequences where you played as Gandalf and Aragorn and stuff like that, but there are also some like weird side sequences where you played as um, Frodo and Sam and fuck with like Shelob or whatever that big spider was called. Um, and you know it, it had a lot of the things that kind of movie times at the time had with like kind of like his opportunities to see maybe um, what was happening like when during this scene in the movie. Here's what these people were doing, or here's some behind-the-scenes right. featurettes and stuff like that. Hence the Matrix did a lot of that shit as well, because obviously the Wachowskis were heavily involved in the production of that game. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, that's a big conversation, um, and I feel like we spun that out in more directions than I thought we would. <laughs> um, but that's because it's big, and it, it's complicated, um, and it's going to be fascinating to see what Embracer do next. Um, finally, though, Jonesy, before we sign off, um, there's one quick thing I wanted to bring up. If for no other reason than just to get your kind of like your gut reactions to some interesting headlines that have been coming out of the world of streaming lately, which we are tangen tangentially related to. We do stream uh, occasionally, albeit on YouTube, which is not the platform that we're going to be discussing today. Although each of us have streamed on Twitch in the past. And so we are perhaps familiar with what streaming on Twitch entails. We're familiar with, if not the partner program, then the affiliate program, if nothing else. Um, but it's the partner program that has been making a few headlines in the past week because uh, Twitch have introduced uh, what they are describing as a new revenue split for partners. Uh, but there is, of course, a catch that we'll get to in the moment. It's called Partner Plus, and it's a benefit for existing partners uh, offering uh, a 70% or so a 70-30 revenue split on subscriptions, um, which is kind of a return to what some streamers, certainly bigger streamers, were already on at one point prior to Twitch uh, sort of canning it um, a little while ago. However, there are, of course, caveats to how this works. As I said, this is kind of aimed at people who are maybe a little bit further along in their journey as a partner as, as we ever were um, in our streaming adventures. Um, for example, you need to maintain a subscription count of at least 350 recurring paid subscriptions for three consecutive months. Um, people have been quick to point out that this means that uh, gifted subscriptions and prime subscriptions, which are, of course, very popular and very prominent, wouldn't count towards this number. Um, and so uh, what that means is that the response to this from the majority of streamers, and again, when you talk about stretch, Twitch, you're talking about the majority of streamers being in, let's be honest, as you and I were, the kind of the the, the lower end of earners on Twitch. Well, it's, there's that disturbing fact, isn't there, though, that like to earn minimum wage on Twitch, you have to be in like the top 0.1% of streamers on the platform, right? So I, I actually pulled out some information because I was uh, there was a, a there was a leak back in the day, and I think there's um, some other information okay. as well like, that's come out about um, about Twitch, and I was just trying to yeah figure out how much you would need to be. So a poll of Twitch streamers um, su seems to suggest that to be on, uh, to what, what we said, you said minimum wage. Yeah, so, I, I don't remember. I just remember like a kind of a catchy headline that said something along those terms. I can't remember the numbers though. So I think if you said that you could earn, um, or let, what should we put it? So if you wanted to be someone who earned at least $100 a month, on Twitch, one hundred dollars. So, so twelve hundred dollars a year. So nothing. So barely anything. Um, you would need to be in like the top ten percent of streamers to earn more than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, that makes sense. But then I think if you, they've actually got some numbers on the side that I found that does drill down a little bit to says, um, 
effectively that in order to earn a thousand dollars a month, you would need to be in the top ten thousand streamers, which suggests that the number of people actually streaming on Twitch is gargantuan. I mean, I think it is, which is a lot I mean, more than I ever thought that there were, to be honest. Well, I think that's the kind of the mistake that I think some people make is that they still see live streaming uh, as a sort of a fledging, fledging like a an, an up and coming thing to try, and that Twitch are like relatively new sites. But I think the number of people that have created a Twitch account and tried their hand at streaming at one point or another, just to realize, oh, I'm sat here with zero viewers and there's nothing I can do about it, or at least I'm going to have to try very hard and scream from the rooftops to change something about that, um, and then give up. <laughs> That's an extremely big number. Um, and it's the people, though, that haven't given up uh, that, are, that are looking at this and saying, well, this is a lot of hot air. The number of people that are actually going to uh, experience or benefit from this new 70-30 split that Twitch are talking about a lot is relatively slim. You're talking about a, you know a portion of streamers who are A, partnered, B, um, earn over 350 you know, subscriptions within that time period, but also don't take more than 2,400 because then they'll hit that $100,000 threshold across 12 months. So this is really like looking at the weird middle ground of people who aren't making sort of like it, it's a, it's 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 an odd spot, which I guess is kind of enough ammunition for people on Twitter who uh, fall under these thresholds to say, "Well, like this isn't a thing. This isn't benefiting most people. This isn't benefiting streamers. Why not make this for all partners and so on and so forth?" Which is a little bit. I don't. I don't want to. Yeah, I feel like I'm not actually. I'm not going to say it. It just might because it could be misconstrued as mean. But yeah. It's, it is a weird one. Like, I, it is very strange because, like, if you, the 50 50 seems ridiculous for what, like, if you are, if you, someone's signing up to do your partner thing and they've got, they've got, um, what do we say, 350 paid subscriptions and yeah. they're not, and they're, and they're currently getting 50 50, like, that does seem ridiculous. But then the fact that this is such a small group of people this is going to affect before you then get over to the 100,000, which is such a, like, that's the very top level of streamers anyway. And then that that so if you're talking about those people that are that successful and that they draw in that much of an audience, surely you're just effectively saying to them, "Hey, man, you should go to sort of another platform because we don't really want you." Like it's such a strange way well, to do it. Yeah, uh, I guess the question is though is like well, because of like Twitch's size and potential discoverability issues, do they actually end up making more money on another platform? But it's interesting that you mentioned other platforms because this is a conversation that continues to rumble on in the background and has uh, come to the forefront once again uh, this week, uh, kind of timed quite interestingly with Twitch's announcement, because um, uh, Kick, which is, I guess, it's being touted as, as sort of like an up-and-coming streaming platform. I think it's got a lot of problems, such as some of the creators that have gone over there are people who are perhaps known to have slightly dicier, less Twitch-friendly backgrounds. And I think also... Kick themselves have connections to like uh, crypto gambling websites in the past, uh, like, like Stake, who of course made a big splash on Twitch before Twitch amended their terms of service to essentially make platforms like that um, not like not banned, but you couldn't stream yourself gambling on on platforms like Stake after a certain point. But um, Kick made headlines uh, this week uh, when uh, when XQC, real name Felix. Lengyel, which I'm probably butchering, but after Lars Winger falls, I think I'll probably get away with it. 
he was one of the largest, if not the largest streamer on Twitch, certainly as far as the English language goes. Um, he has announced that he has signed uh, with rival platform Kick um, in what's being touted as certainly one of the largest streaming deals ever. I think some people were saying that even if you applied it to the world of professional sports by some metrics, it would be one of the biggest contracts ever signed. Um, brokered by Ryan Morrison, who's the CEO of Evolved Talent Agency. Um, it is a two-year non-exclusive contract that is worth uh, nine figures. Uh, a lot of people talking about $100 million, so $50 million a year. Interesting as well to say again, non-exclusive. So this doesn't even mean that XQC has to stop streaming on Twitch entirely. Um, the exact amount of the deal hasn't been revealed, but it's massive. Um, That's and it's reminiscent. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm, the non-exclusive thing to me is weird. Like, how's that work? If he does a, if he does like multi-streaming to kick and to twitch at the same I don't time know if, i don't know if you twitch allow that though I, i'd imagine there's gonna i'd imagine there's gonna be some kind of contract where he has like a minimum number of streams or minimum number of hours he has to stream over on kick and he like added a clause where he doesn't have to give up on twitch entirely but it will be interesting to see yeah how how that bounces out i don't if know you were, if you were smart and you were, if twitch was smart they would immediately turn around to xqc and say uh don't worry about it multi-stream I mean, yeah, because then they could they they could then scupper what Kicker trying to do by you know signing a non exclusive deal and saying, right. yeah, don't don't worry, man, you you can still stream with us. It's only two years, and then after two years, see how you feel. Maybe you want to stay there. Maybe you want to come back here because then all those people that are already on Twitch who don't want to have to move over, they're still pumping their subscriptions into XQC. There, they they might lose some people because of Kick. Yeah. The worst thing they can do is to go. Nope, uh, you can't multi-stream. Therefore, you can't put your stuff on Twitch because you're going to kick. You're playing right into their hands. Like, if anything, you should just yeah allow them to do it. Just say yeah. And if a small yeah. person says they're going to do it, just be like, no, you can't do it. You don't earn any money. You don't care. I don't know if Twitch have a great track record when it comes to making decisions that are in their own best interests. Terrible, like terrible track record. Yeah, I would go so far as to say they often do the opposite to what you think they should do in their <laughs> business decisions. Yeah, uh, it, it, I mean, but but between these two bits, of, you know, these two interesting revelations this past week, it's going to be interesting to see because there is a kind of an arrogance, I guess, sometimes to Twitch is what you could say is they're they're the yes, really big bollocks of the of the live streaming industry. Amazon owns; they are the number one destination for streamers and viewers alike, and they are still uh, the home of the biggest streamers on the planet. And when even massive companies like Microsoft have gone after some of that audience, you might remember. Uh, Folks at home might remember Mixer, which was Microsoft's streaming platform. They went after the likes of uh, Ninja and Shroud and uh, and bought them up on what were exclusive deals uh, and much smaller than the XQC one. I think Ninja was estimated to have uh, have a contract worth twenty to thirty million. And uh, Microsoft, in the end, were like, "Yeah, we're out. We're out. The, the, those contracts are null and void, um, and we're closing down Mixer." And so you do kind of wonder. Like, how much how much longer can whoever it is that's behind Kick continue to throw around these ludicrous sums of money um, for these for these very generous and lenient non exclusive contracts? Um, it's weird. Does it remind you a little bit of a uh, a rival to YouTube uh, many years ago that tried what to? What was it called? <laughs> I can't remember. But it's... Uh, oh man. Well, yeah, they pay, they 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 pay, they paid you to upload. They paid you for the 
it wasn't just the ad revenue that we learned, right? You don't guarantee amounts based on your uploads. And it was 48, they wanted a 48 hour exclusivity uh, in front of YouTube. So we uploaded our yep. content to YouTube uh, to their first 40 hours, you put it on YouTube and they were paying silly amount of money um, in order to get that exclusivity. I think trying to poach the YouTube audience and they were dead inside of six months, I think. Yeah. And not surprised. And, and and to be fair, you mentioned that, like, I think Kick have some other like things like that as well. Like I was reading the other day that I think Kick offer are offering some mid-size YouTube, mid-size streamers, excuse me, um, basically a salary saying like, hey, we'll pay you like $30,000 a year to stream on Kick until you, and as you kind of grow your audience, which is another like very, well, not as expensive as a $100 million deal, don't get me wrong, but it's an interesting kind of tactic to lure you know, assuming the viewership goes to kick and people can grow audiences on kick that are sustained through subscriptions that can rival the amount of money one could earn on Twitch, uh, that's going to be what's interesting to see. Because, of course, like we talk about um, uh, Shroud and Ninja when they went to Mixer briefly, or you talk about, um, I don't know, there have been people in the past that have briefly gone to Facebook or briefly gone to YouTube. The thing that most of them have in common is once those contracts are over or voided, is they come back to Twitch because right. it's still so much harder to make an equivalent amount of money um, on 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 other platforms. And YouTube have continued like a push, and YouTube you know went out and got Ludwig, and they went out and got Valkyrie and people like that. Um, but I haven't heard about uh, even Tim the Tapman. Like well, it was a, in the on the more sort of like oh boots on the like. You know, beer drink, beer drinking, sports loving, tutor playing. Uh, you know, audience like that was a big deal. I remember thinking, um, and like I haven't really heard much about YouTube's live streaming fortunes for better or for worse since those kind of deals. So it's just a, a weird landscape at the moment, uh, and one where um, I don't know. I, I, I I'm just waiting for someone to sign a contract under our noses, Josie. That's all I want out of this. I think, do you know what I always think is funny about these sorts of things? Like you, we, you were saying there about kind of paying streamers salaries. If I had kicks money, like startup money, and I had nine figures to drop on someone like XQC, I wouldn't touch someone like XQC. Do you know what I would do? I would take that nine figures. I would say, all right, I'm going to pay. I'm going to go to universities um, across the world. I'm going to find hot, nerdy girls and guys and I'm going to pay them or like I'm going to go and find nerdy courses that they probably come like that they would have come through because they like video games and I'm going to offer each one straight out of university um, I, don't, I don't know what it would be like in other countries but let's if you went up to a university graduate and said I'm going to give you 25k a year to sit in your room and to play video games at, at 9 to uh, 21 years old whatever you are when you graduate university and you could hire like a hundred of them for the same money they've paid for uh, on XQC, and then I just have like this. But that wouldn't that wouldn't do anything. I think it would. I think if you had yeah, it, because like you've still got a platform that no viewer is actively going to because their favorite streamers exist somewhere else. But I'm what that, I'm saying that's is the problem. That's the problem with the live streaming scene is that like ninety nine percent of the audience watch like point one percent of the streamers. Yes, I I think you could build a new platform that would cost you. My, like this because that's what Kick have done, right? They've built a new platform. They, they're like, we're going to bring across XUC to bring across all the viewers. But I think that is not the problem that you. That's not the thing you have. The viewers are on Twitch, 
they often think they can migrate the viewers, but I don't think that's anywhere near as easy as they, they think. I think that's what Mixer found out with the Shroud and Ninja. So I wouldn't even bother. That's what I'm saying. If you had that much money to drop on one person, that means you've got a lot more money to run the company. I would try and create a brand new platform and my platform would be, we've got the hottest streamers in the world. Nothing dodgy. I'm not saying they do anything weird. I'm just saying, you just, and that's your marketing. You say, we've got right. the hottest streamers on the planet from all over the world. And you click on a country. I don't think that works. I don't think that works. Again, like again, when you look at like the top watched streamers um, on Twitch now as a platform, like you're reminded that the booby streamer thing is a fallacy, that a very small portion it of is. people watch that to to because they get off on it in some way or they have some weird para they think they have some weird kind of like fucking parasocial relationship with the streamer but like Pokimane and Amaranth are regularly like the only two women amongst the uh, 50 most watched streamers on Twitch and stuff like that with, is, with, yeah, without live that come in and out depending on things like the hot tub meta and other crazes that kind of kick off and launch some streamers careers um until they realize there's more money in only fans and uh <laughs> no. well see you say that mate just don't don't you worry when i've started my own streaming platform and we've got all the hotties streaming games you'll be you'll be asking to come and work yeah. as my vp of i don't even know i don't even know what bros you have i'll be there as long as i'm not gonna get in trouble with your weird sort of like vp of marketing vp of new streamer hires i'm maybe i'll, I'll be down I, I'd be fascinated to see what your company, uh, the kind of dent your company is able to make, Gen Z, as I am with just about all of these uh, purported Twitch rivals. Um, because if you were to guess, if you had to take a punt, hmm. where the where the Twitch killer comes from? Do you have a Do you have a, a thought for the future? It, it, it's just so hard to know because, like. We've seen like we've seen other established social media websites that aren't going anywhere, like Facebook and YouTube, try and sort of like move in that direction. Hasn't really had an impact. We've seen companies that don't have a presence in that field try and create one, like Microsoft, multi-billion-dollar organization. Now, don't get me wrong, Microsoft and the Microsofts and Googles of the world are very prone to giving up early on something that doesn't seem to be immediately successful. But I think even still, the Mixer experiment failed by and large. And now we've got the other weird thing, which is like weird startups with connections to crypto gambling websites that have like money that seems to be growing on trees, spending, you know, sports like LeBron James money <laughs> on weird Canadian streamers. Um, and like there have been so many different tactics that have been used and none of them have worked so far. And this all coinciding with us being told every six months by streamers our oh, twitch is the worst platform in the world twitch is imploding twitch is making the worst possible decisions and no matter how much bad press twitch gets and no matter how many money moves and or mogul moves i guess would be the appropriate way of putting it other platforms seem to make the balance of power never truly shifts and for that reason i just feel like i have to sit on the fence and say i don't know like it's so hard to say because all the ingredients for something to disrupt the balance of power have been there already and it hasn't happened yet. So I because I think you I think you're absolutely right. But I, and I actually I think it's interesting when you frame it like that and then you say uh, a lot of streamers are annoyed about the fact of this this split, you know, the um the fact that it reverts to 50-50 and the fact that it's um, you know, that they think it should be more of a 70-30 split across the board. But actually, if you if you think about it like that and you say, hold on. The only reason you can make any, like forget percentages, the only reason you can make any money is because there is an audience on Twitch. 
So yep. you are, by coming over to our platform and by getting some viewers and getting 350 or however many paid subscribers, all you've really done is walked into our house and chat to some of our guests and they've agreed to like give you some money. So really, but actually we're allowing you in our house. We're allowing you to stream. Yep. So if you want to take 70% of our revenue, you can do one. Yeah. We have the audience. We have the traffic. We have the millions of people who the first thing they do when they finish work is they go into their, you know, their address bar and their browser and start typing TW or at most case, actually P-O-R-N-H-U. Uh, but then after that, T-W-I-T and so on and so forth. And also we are Amazon and we have the capacity to go out and find, you know, the the you know the most relevant on the heart or perhaps I don't even know I'm not going to say the highest paying advertiser in the world because they're not because Amazon have you know rules about who can or cannot advertise on content that they're technically representing but like there's a lot you're right there's a lot of sway there and that's always going to be where the audience is um and and it's so hard to know because you just in your business plan you just implied that you don't think the larger streamers are the ones that are going to shift the audience no like you think you have to create a new audience and like so even that is like, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Um, I, think, I think that's the only way Twitch ends up, um, it, like the Twitch killer for me, there's no, there's no such thing as the Twitch killer. What it actually is, is natural decline of Twitch over time due to the fact that it's, it starts to, in 10 years time, I don't know, it starts to just feel a little bit old, a little bit dated. The changes they've implemented don't make the platform work that well. And actually there's a, a couple of rivals on the scene that work a bit better. They fit the meta then, a little bit better. They, the young people like it more for whatever reason. And then gradually the audience migrates. And then and at that point, one platform says, we do 70-30 and Twitch says, we do 50-50. And actually there's a realistic decision because at the moment there's no decision, right? At the moment the right. decision is 70-30 is great, but 70-30, but if I get 70% of nothing, that's nothing. If I get 50% of 100 quid, hey, that's 50 bucks. Sure. So I think that's the, that's the, what, the thing people have to work then, in the heads at the moment. What, when does the Twitch killer rhetoric end? Because... We've already never, but we've already discussed someone who thought they could be the YouTube killer and how laughable that was with hindsight. Right, the conversation around the YouTube killer has ended. YouTube are YouTube, and it doesn't feel like anyone is ever going to take like there are going to be people that distract from YouTube. Like there's going to be a huge wave in, of popularity in in short form content. YouTube aren't going to be best positioned to take advantage of that wave of popularity, and so platforms like TikTok are going to come along and generate massive audiences over time. Still, people look at TikTok and YouTube and recognize that they're slightly different things and that like TikTok aren't seen as a YouTube killer. And I think even if TikTok tried to expand and go into longer than short form content, they wouldn't be seen as a... Like what I'm saying is that conversation broadly died. Why won't that conversation die with Twitch? Is it because they're so inefficient and because they make mistakes and because their users are so unhappy or is it just a matter of time? I don't... I don't hear people griping about YouTube the way that people do about Twitch. I, I regular. I don't think there's there's no alternative at the moment for. Um, I think I think I think the YouTube alternatives don't exist, like you just said, and so the big YouTubers don't seriously consider. Like, what is it? Rumble. Like, I've heard a lot of like Rumble right wing kind of stuff talking about this thing. Yes. Oh, I'm going there because I can say what I want. It's like yeah, but no one else is going over. Was it Donald Trump started his own Twitter, didn't he? Like, tr is it Truth Social? And no one went over there like with for that. Um, mm -hmm. I think realistically, people want to be where the people are. And it's, it's funny, you solidified it for me. I know exactly who the Twitch killer is going to be. I know exactly who the YouTube killer are going to be. I'll tell you. Do you know the Twitch nice. killer is only going to be Twitch? And the YouTube killer oh, is going to be YouTube. In the same yep. way that MySpace um, 
like basically made themselves irrelevant with all the crap changes they implemented and by messing with the the what what they had so much and that people were like god this is an annoying platform like god i hate using this now and then something else came along like facebook and they went oh my just get me off myspace i think that's the only thing that would do it is is fair are those fair. platforms themselves is it, it will kill guess, themselves is it the only thing that's different between like we've got lots of examples of social media giants of the past dying and being replaced um up until facebook um or the like I get like we it feels like we've been in the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram era for a while, but that that could change. I guess the thing the thing that feels different about TikTok and Twitch and YouTube is that they're creator led and creator focused. And it feels like it's those creators that are subject to the same destructive cycle where they eventually fade away and get irrele- become irrelevant and get replaced. But as long as they're replaced by something or someone on those same platforms, then the platforms themselves don't care, which makes makes it hard to know like what's the like, how do you apply the MySpace analogy to Twitch when, when, when it's like, it, it goes back to that argument that I think this whole thing is about is like, where, who holds the power? We all agree that Twitch is an empowerful position because it's the go-to place. But when you arrive at Twitch, you still need to watch someone. Yes. Um, and yeah, that makes it really hard to quantify. I don't know. Sorry, that was a really unhelpful addendum in the end. <laughs> I just trailed off in my own uncertainty. <laughs> No, I, I think yeah. it's it's really hard to know. Like you said, it, it's it's such a strange, such a strange beast, and the way these things work is so. Because I was, it made me think of Facebook. It's like how you know you're saying, but it's, we're in the Twitter, Instagram, Facebook era, and that's absolutely true. However, like Facebook is a little bit of a joke now when it goes. Yeah. Like Facebook's for boomers. Like it Facebook is, is but for- like, I, I think what's happened is that the people who feel like Facebook is, uh, is for boomers, rather than finding the new Facebook, they've adjusted to life without Facebook. They've said to themselves, and Meta or Instagram. I don't. Well, yeah, they, and and pe- and they they filtered that. So they say, okay, I don't need to upload a two hundred photo album onto Facebook when I come back from holiday. I upload a story onto Instagram. I don't need to share my status with my grandma. I'll put out a tweet. Like people have found other outlets for their social media habits without outright replacing Facebook, which is what again one of the interesting things that we've talked about uh, loads of times over the years is. How many social media platforms come along and gain popularity by taking one facet of what a giant social media website or or, or app did and just doing it kind of better? Like Instagram just did photos better, Twitter 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 just did statuses better, you know TikTok and Vine are like 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 Vine like Vine was always so fascinating to me because it was like we gonna t- you can share videos that are, are, are any length you want on Twitter or on Facebook. But an app that comes along and forces you to create a, a video that's a certain length becomes more appealing to people. Um, it, it, that it's, it, I love the way that social media ebbs and flows, uh, even if I always do so from a very safe distance. But it makes it hard to predict. Well, it's funny because like, at the time it seemed weird, but actually like Facebook changing their name to Meta and becoming a parent company and then sort of like withdrawing a little bit is actually the smartest thing they could possibly have done because then what happens is they sort of extend their tendrils into Instagram. They move, then they move between the two, and then as Facebook kind of starts to die off, as like we're saying, it's like people joke that Facebook's for boomers. There's a shitload of boomers still out there, and when they say You're boomers, right. they don't just mean boomers; they mean boomers, Gen X, and like elder millennials. I still use Facebook, like I don't, I don't put pictures and status on there, but I check it all the time because I know a lot of people that do use it. But even as those people like die off and start to like not literally, but start to stop using the platform. 
it doesn't matter because Meta just slide their way over it to Instagram. And then because they've got so much money, the next platform that pops up, they just buy that one and then they slide yeah. across to that one. They have WhatsApp as well, right? Yeah, I, think, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, for, yeah. so for them, it's like it actually becomes irrelevant as long as they can keep the, the momentum going of maneuvering from one social media platform to the other. Very true. Yeah. They don't, re- they probably don't give a shit that Facebook is, um, although disappears. They could do, they could maybe do with pouring a few less billions into the metaverse and into, into VR. And so, at least while it's at the point where it's seemingly causing them to have to, like, Facebook, so laid, you have to also remember that Facebook yeah. laid off, have laid off tens of thousands of people in the last six months to a year yeah but that's a weird one because like we're talking about with games everyone kind of knows or they think they know where everything's going it's going vr it's going metaverse it's going um in this direction but no one knows how it's going to get there so all these people are trying to like get there first by investing a load of money and it's kind of not working and that's across yeah. video games. It's across social media. It's it's very interesting, like to see it happen in real time. It and absolutely then, is. And to know that it's probably going to be something none of us expected, um, and the actual hub world game that everywhere wants to be, and the actual meta like metaverse portal that everyone uses is going to be nothing to do with Facebook, nothing to do with uh, build a rocket boy. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's weird, but hey, it is. It's interesting. It's weird. I mean. We though we're just you know, uh, you know, just regular, just innocent men, right? Just and, innocent men. Um, uh, and for all your 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 twitches and your kicks and your Facebooks and your metas, Twitter, Instagram, we like to keep it simple. Just one link: patreon.com forward slash super show. That's where you can go when you are feeling sorry for us that we are not on one hundred million dollar two year non exclusive contracts with Kick. You can help us feel that a little bit better by pledging over there. Um, how did we turn this dry last week into a over two hour podcast by rabbiting on for so long? Um, I, th- I think you said it yourself by rabbiting on. Like uh, we we have a unique capacity to spout uh, uninteresting bullshit um, ad nauseum, and we'll continue to exercise our right to do so week week in week out for as long as there's at least one person on planet Earth um, that that finds it somewhat engaging or interesting. And um, my mum doesn't listen to this show. But uh, but I I think I could convince her, which is basically our one way ticket to never having to stop. I like it. All right. Well, Jonesy, as you said, a bunch of really uninteresting news stories that we managed to stretch out into uh, not quite record time, uh, but certainly longer than we thought when we started doing this thing. Um, and so, all the more reason for me to say thank you to you for being such a warm and generous uh, co-host and for offering, as always, such amazing insights into all these different stories. Um, gaming and beyond um and thank you for always being such a treasure to you know and whether it's in my life or the lives of anyone who watches and or listens to this to this podcast um yeah sorry go for it thank you thank thank you jamie for steering this rickety ship and keeping it afloat (laughs) oh i hope it's not too rickety uh but it is um you're right let's focus on the positives we are afloat and we're afloat because you are keeping us there that's you who has watched or listened to this podcast whether you're doing it live as it premiered on YouTube, I think it's going to premiere or as it was uploaded to YouTube, or whether you're listening to this back in months or years' time, getting a heavy dose of nostalgia as we speculate about what's going to happen to Twitch <laughs> when you're sat there in the year 2025 and you already know the future. Uh, thank you, one and all, for joining us, um, for watching, for listening, for considering pledging to the Patreon. And we would be la- live 
again, well, we're, we're going to be back again with more regularly scheduled content, probably this time next week. Hopefully something interesting happens in the industry. But until then, um, from myself and from Mr. Jones, thank you and good night. See ya.